Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. And a very good morning, and I hope you can hear me loud and clear across the world. We are live. This is the first time we've ever done this. We are live from Studio 1.5 through a strange sequence of events that I might explain during the course of the morning. Then again, I might not. We'll see. But anyway, we're here. We're live. 1850-715-996 of the number. Text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. You can catch us on Twitter at OpinionLine96. Of course, the hashtag is OL96. And if you want to message us through Facebook, it's the Corks 96 of M Facebook page. And uh, please address your messages for the attention of the Opinion Line. Always best to do that because we can find them faster. Coming up a bit later, uh, would you be interested in becoming a foster carer? Because they're looking for foster carers this week. Um, What what could COVID-19 do for the future of house design? You'd be amazed. The last pandemic affected the design of houses, and now the architects tell us that this one will also affect the the, the design of houses. And also the, the question of the day, another one of the questions of the day, what happens next for Ian Bailey? If you have any thoughts on the budget also, I'd like to hear them. With Any ideas of what the ministers, it's ministers again now, we had two at one point, then we had back to one, now we've two. The ministers, what do you want from them when they get to their feet at one o'clock today? But let's go first to Debenhams because the story continues and Valerie Conlon will Correct me if I'm wrong, but Valerie, this is day 187. Good morning. Good morning. You're right. Day 187 to six months last Friday. Crikey. Crikey. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, just con- it just continues and continues and continues. The latest now is that KPMG want to take an injunction against you guys. Yes, the court case is actually this morning in Dublin at half past ten. Um, they served the papers last Wednesday evening, went last Wednesday night. And, um, yes, so that's the road that they want to go down now. They've named three people on it. And one of the people is from Cork, Caroline Bridgman, and she's actually up in Dublin now at the moment waiting to go to court. 
Okay, and they're seeking, obviously, for you guys to withdraw your picket, to draw your protest. Well, no, so the, because it's not against mandate, so the official strike can still go ahead. So what they're saying is that we can't stop bands going in. That doesn't make a whole pile of sense because that's what you've been doing since the start. That's why the strike is there, is it not? Yes, yes, it is. And you were meant to stop them and ask them not to pass a picket. But there's been once or twice we've actually stopped them. Because of the Industrial Relations Act of 1990, you're not allowed to uh, barricade or block any vans going in or out of anywhere. And mm. uh, we have done that on a few times. A few, uh, Most of the stores now at this stage have done yeah. that. So um, that's why mandates aren't aimed at this. Right, right. Do you not have support of mandate in those blockades, like when you block a truck? Um, they can't. They can't be saying that they're supporting us for that because it is illegal. Right. But um, they've never gone against us either. Yeah, they've never said not to put it that way. Or have well, they? They, they they did. They did. They told us not to do it. But when we did it, they, they haven't said anything to us. You know. Right. So if it's a thing that KPMG get the injunction in the court today, what implications does that have? So this is where now it gets, I suppose, a bit scary for all the staff in all 11 stores. Uh, so once the injunction is put in place today, it takes about a half an hour for that to go to all the guard stations. So in the meantime, if a van comes in and we stop that van illegally, um, the guards will come down, they'll read the injunction to us. Um, they can take our names and give us a caution, which then we will be going up to court. Right. And uh, we could face jail. So you could actually be arrested. Yeah, yeah. Does that does that stop you? No, I think no. Um, we had a meeting. I am um, as our office now down the lane. Uh, Sunday night, there was twenty seven staff arrived to that meeting. There was others obviously couldn't make it, and the majority of those people are willing to stand in front of the trucks today as I've told Micheál Martin, and get arrested. And I've said this to Micheál Martin last Friday. Yeah. Uh, he promised to get back to me. I know he's busy. I know there's a budget. But this has been going on for the last six months. He hasn't done anything, and we're calling for him to do something now because, he's ex- as usual, he's just ignoring it. Yeah. You're disappointed in him, I think, since he took office as Taoiseach, Valerie. We're very disappointed in him. At the end of the day, as I, was, as I said to him on Friday... Carl Bridgman is uh, is from Cork and he has done nothing to help us. There's two stores in Cork and he has done nothing to help us. Mm. So he could have now multiple women being arrested today, between today and tomorrow, and he has done nothing about it. Now, I suppose, Valerie, one has to put the other side of the argument, and it is this, in that Debenhams are not breaking any law here and and really the Taoiseach of the day cannot uh, be seen to go against law like can he I agree I know what you're saying and this is what he's constantly saying but if you go back to 2008 to when the banks went bankrupt or had no money and they were able to bring in overnight billions to help the banks we're not asking for billions PJ we're asking for uh, 10.5, 11 million. There's a big difference. Mm. Yeah. 
You see, you've Debenhams Ireland, which is one entity, and you've Debenhams yeah. UK, which is the other entity, the parent company. Debenhams yeah. Ireland claims it doesn't have any money. You're asking them to reach into the pockets of their parents, if you want. And the parents are saying that they have nothing to do with us. The parents have taken over uh, a multi-million um, site, debenhams.ie, from us, that they said in court belonged to the Irish side. Then they decided to just take it. In 2018, that site made £30 million. Mm. So they t- they put it in the papers, oh, it's probably about a month ago now, saying that they thought they'd only have £45 million in the bank, but no, actually, they actually have £90 million, £95 million in the bank. So, so, like, so they have the money? They have the money. They're saying they don't have the money. They have the money. Okay, okay. So you guys are determined to stay there? Can, in all serious, seriousness, how can we step back at this stage? How can we just step back and let the vans in after fighting for six months? Well, memorably on the day 161, I asked you to think about another figure of 200. We're only 13 short of that now, Valerie. Yeah, yeah, it will make the 200, I'd say. Um, we, oh, well, we hope that something will come before 200, or else if we staff probably on the pickets will be arrested at that stage. Um, after today or tomorrow, but really we can't see, we can't tell what's going to happen. But we are asking all the people of Cork today to come out and support Caroline. Uh, we will be outside the store at half past ten uh, okay. for a minute clapping for her, just to show our support, show her how strong she is. Okay, stay there, and Valerie, for me for just a second. Stay there because I think Anne is on line three. You can plug her in there for me, Wayne, please. Anne, good morning. Morning, PJ. And Valerie can hear you as well. Good morning to the girls. I was in town last week and I brought the girls a cup of coffee and something hot to eat. And we had a bit of a chat. So what I'm doing, and I'm hoping that the people of Cork will do this morning, is put on two pairs of socks, something warm, a warm jacket, a high-vis vest, your mask, and come in and stand socially distancing. You're two metres apart and stand with the girls on Patrick Street and down the side road. Now and I am getting that, ready that, that, and I am That's a wonderful in. idea, but I have to cut across. I'm obliged to do this. I have to cut across and say that you can't have a gathering at the moment in the outdoors well, of more than 15 people. Well, so. we're ex- I'm, I'm going to be exercising. I'm not going to be sitting still. I'm going to be exercising. And maybe if we had 50 other people exercising on that street and on Patrick Street, we wouldn't have enough paddy wagons. A load of people with skipping ropes. Yeah. If we're walking up and down PJ, we're exercising. We're not standing still. And we're not protesting. Okay. All right. All right. Listen. I used to be a legal secretary, so there's always a loophole. Oh, very useful. All right, and leave it there. Thanks, Thanks very much. And Valerie, let us know if there is anything from the court. You let the lads know, and we'll we'll go to it straight away. I will, of course. I will, of course. Thank you very much, PJ. All right. Thanks, Anne. And Thank thanks, you. Valerie Conlon, the Debenhams Shop Steward for Mandate. 1850-715-996. Back in just a couple of minutes. They tell us that self-employed people so badly affected by the pandemic are now going to the penny dinners for their food. That's next. 1850-715-996. The Takeover. On Cork's 96FM. Weeknights from 7 on the Big Drive Home. We give you the chance to take charge of our tunes. Join me, Lorraine, as you decide what songs we fire up. Fire up. Fire up. Fire up. Fire up. Fire up. 
pick what we play. See our song list on 96FM Insta Stories. Now, at the very start of the pandemic, I spoke to Katrina Toomey at Cork Penny Dinners about the implications for their service of having to, for example, close their doors as they did, and they went completely takeaway for months on end. But now they're coming across a problem, which I guess is not a new one, but they've just uh, highlighted it. They're seeing, according to Katrina, self-employed people who can't afford food because of the effects of COVID-19. These are people with businesses. These are people you know, who had, before the pandemic, they had maybe very successful business, could have been trades, could have been any kind of a service they were providing, whatever. They're now coming in looking for food because they simply don't have money to eat because of the effects of the pandemic on the self-employed. Katrina, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Now, you've always said to me over the years that all sorts, all types of people use the services yep. of the penny dinners. But the, the, the self-employed people have been particularly badly hit by, by the pandemic, and now they're coming to you. Yes, they have. And, you know, <clears throat> when you look at it, like there is no safety net there for them. They've worked hard in building up their businesses there. You know, it could be just a guy that's working on his own, doing his own thing, but self-employed. And not alone are they losing an income, they're losing their dreams as well. They're at risk of losing their homes, you know, paying their bills and making ends meet when they don't have any income coming into them. Um, and, uh, like, we know that the government will have to put in a bailout package for them, but we want a bailout package, I suppose. What we should be looking at is that the government should be putting a bailout package there that puts them back on their feet, but don't crucify them. Then, when their the payback starts, let there be you know, we have to look at kind of no payback. We have to put people back on their feet without, say, taking them a couple of months to get them back on their feet and then their years paying off whatever the government has given them. You know, there can't be a plaster on the wound anymore. Many wounds now in the country, there are so many, and they have to be opened up, cleaned out, and stitched back together again. We yeah. think of the musicians, the artists, the actors, the actresses, the the dancers, etc. We think of their work, the concerts, the plays, the ballets, the pantos, the exhibitions. We think of our cafes, our restaurants, our bars, etc. Like we, we think of our taxi drivers who recently took to the streets to plead with the government to look at their place. There's a huge amount of them at risk. We take yeah. like every chance. We must take every chance to get to highlight, I suppose, the Deb and the Marcus and what they are going through. Who will be next? We need safeguards, safety nets. They have to be addressed right now. Resources have to be ploughed into all the services. The services yeah. are excellent, but they need the resources. And it's not just frontline, it's backline. You know, these workers get on with their jobs instead of juggling and trying to facilitate beyond capacity. Take a look at the hospital bed situations, the trolleys, the appointment times. Look what the nurses have to go through to try and juggle all of this. The guardie yeah. need more resources. Mental health services are being, you know, uh, slaughtered. I suppose at the minute. Well, people, and people say, Katrina, that's that's the second pandemic is 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 it, mental health. But you've raised so many different categories there. But you've raised a fabulous point, which was made to me over the last while, actually. You know, and we'll hear from Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath what they have to offer to us today uh, around yeah. one o'clock when they take their feet in the door. But it's a very good point. There's there's no point really in in giving the self-employed some help now and we hope they will giving any sector some help now publicans whatever there's no point in giving them some help if you're going to come back to them in two years and say well now mate we want that money back this has to be an absolute grant it has to be it won't work any other way I mean what do they expect people to do who have 
who have built and created, you know, their income, their dreams, you know, bought their homes, done their, their thing. And, and then all of a sudden, like to say, OK, we're going to put you back on your feet, but then force them to work longer hours. You know, put like we, we, we have heard from people who have had to let workers go, but have tried to keep a skeleton service in operation, like a takeaway service. And they've had to bring in family members to kind yeah. of help them with the prep and stuff like that. We've heard lots and lots and lots of stories and we've seen, we're seeing the despair growing amongst that community, you know. I mean, take yeah. a look at this, the music world. You know loads of musicians, you know loads of people that yeah. do various things and that depend on this. They depend on weddings for to be performing at, they depend on concerts, etc. You know, mm. we're not going to see any of that. We're not going to see a panto this Christmas anywhere. And, and yeah. like, you know, everything has been taken away, but we have to start putting in again, and the government have to kind of buy into that, give these yeah. people, you know, a proper bailout and don't expect anything back. I don't think Katrina, we can anything back from the banks, did we? <laughs> I was just going to say, Katrina, are your doors um, still closed other yeah. than takeaway? Yeah. No, our door is open the whole time, and we have takeaways all the time for everybody, and we're still giving everybody the hot meal. Yeah. Well, you don't sit down. Are you back to sit down? No, we can't do that. We simply just yeah. can't do it because we are so mindful of keeping everyone safe. And the thing about it is, PJ, they're mindful of keeping themselves safe as well. They want to get through this, and yeah. they'll get through it whatever way they can. So we haven't an issue with not being able to leave people in because they don't mind that. They just are so grateful that we're open and we're there to feed them and to provide them with, you know, for those that are off sleeping, like to provide them with sleeping bags, etc., and provide people with what um, they need, like toiletries and stuff. So we're open all the time, we're open all day long, and we look after everybody. And um, again, the hamper situation, like people are calling us looking for hampers that would have been probably looking after people themselves just a couple of weeks, a yeah. couple of months ago. Do you know... Do you know- People who, who live on the street, Katrina, or who spend most of their time on the street, all of the libraries are closed again, all of the galleries are closed again, all of the pubs and the churches are closed again. Is there anywhere for them to go now even to sit no. down and rest for a couple of hours? No, no, not during the day. Not like what they used to do. They could even go into shopping centres and sit on the seats and stuff. They're all kind of taped off now as well. Like, and They can't do that either. So for them... They just have to walk the, you know, the miserable cold streets, the wet streets. Yeah. They have to do that. And again, what are they going to turn to? You know, a lot of yeah. people think addiction leads them into this life. Sometimes this life, through no fault of their own, can lead them into addictions as well. So yeah. it's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's just, when you're in a situation, and when it takes a long time to get out of that situation, things go really wrong. And you give up hope. Yeah, you, you get know, into a cycle. You get into a cycle of it. You just can't make it go right. For you. During the summer, we lost one or two people, and one of them were one or two of them very high profile. I'm thinking of Gary, the musician who who was yeah. on the the radio with me, and then a month a month yeah. later, the poor devil was no longer with us. And during yeah. the first lockdown. You could really see on the city centre streets at night, particularly Katrina, you know, those who had absolutely nothing else and nowhere else. We're headed back that way again. Yeah. We're headed into winter. Yeah. The nights are already getting cold. Are you fearful that you lose people? 
we will lose people. Make no bones about that. Look at the suicide rates that we've had through this pandemic. Do you know? And that's something that needs to be addressed as well. We can't be losing anybody. It's not right. We we all have to work together to to help this if a person is in trouble mentally or feels that there is no way out. You know, we, we just need to pull the stops out. But the people are doing it. We need the government to pull the stops out. I suppose I should be saying. But what I'm saying is, the people that we've lost, they've. Their families, you know, are so heartbroken by the, by the loss uh, of them and the loss of their plight that it's going to happen again. We're around every single night of the week in town and we see it. During the pandemic, what we saw was something like from a horror movie. People were really left isolated. There was yeah. no one on the streets, just ourselves going around and the lads on the bike and you yeah. see the Gardaí. And, and as poor Gary you know, said to me, he said... There we were, eight or nine of us outside the back, on the down on the down on the docks, and there were hotel rooms empty around yeah. the town, and that must have been so hard yeah. for them. And I'm thinking of him again this morning because I think he touched an awful lot of people when we chatted with him during the summer, and then less than a month later, we we were confirming that his passing. Katrina, as always, I wish you well with the work. If there's anything we can do for you, you know where we are. I do indeed, and look just. We have to thank everybody out there for what they're doing for us to keep us up and running for everybody. We, we, you know, this just doesn't fall out of the sky. It's the, the ordinary just open, the, 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 everybody looking after us, keeping our doors open. So we really have to thank everybody for that. And we want to, you know, talk about the goodwill again of people. It's phenomenal. All right. Katrina, as always, keep up with the, with the good work and thank you. That's Katrina, Katrina Toomey of Cork Penny Dinners. Churches are open, I'm just told here, by for private prayer. Thanks, Frank. Churches are open for private prayer, so they probably could sit in there out of the rain, but that's about as much as people have. Just on, on Debenhams, a delivery driver WhatsApped us at 083 396 And still, predominantly, the women of Cork shop Debenhams online. Debenhams should now be treated the way Scousers treat some newspapers stop supporting Debenhams and support our own girls in Cork Kevin's on WhatsApp if this is another industry other than low paid retail workers it would have been sorted the belief that you can treat low paid workers like crap and they'll just take it is widespread through this pandemic how many lost jobs there with no redundancy and another WhatsApp message best of luck to Caroline Bridgman from Mahan uh, Mahan Point Debenhams she's in court this morning from all of us in Mahan Point who are very proud of her and more kisses that can fill the average A4 page coming in after that. We will, if we get the slightest smidgen of news from the High Court, we'll come back to you uh, ASAP. Speaking of the High Court, another day in court for Ian Bailey yesterday. We'll go there next. 1850-715-996. It's really important we continue our efforts to stop the spread of coronavirus. New government guidelines have now made mask wearing mandatory in shops, supermarkets, shopping centres and on public transport. Retail staff must also wear a mask unless there's a two metre distance or a partition. Disposable masks should only be worn once. Cloth masks should be washed daily and multiple masks should be used in rotation. If a mask becomes damp or wet, it's no longer effective and should be changed. Remember, when touching your
your mask, wash or sanitize your hands. Help stop the spread of coronavirus and stay safe. I've been trying to keep my distance. Keep up to date with the latest COVID-19 information at 96fm.i. This is Court's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Court's 96FM. Now, Mick Clifford has a piece in today's Examiner um, where he says that the evidence does not support the family's belief that Ian Bailey got away with murder. It's a stark piece and a good read, as always, from Mick. But it's about the fact that yesterday in the High Court, Judge Paul Burns ruled against a French bid, another French bid, to extradite Ian Bailey to serve a 25-year sentence uh, for murder. He was convicted in absentia under French law. Uh, his solicitor, Frank Bottomer, joins me. Frank, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Fra- Frank, is this over now for Mr Bailey? Um, that's a matter for the Minister for Justice here, insofar as the extradition decision that was given down yesterday is concerned. You'd have thought it should be because the judgment was so strong and so definitive. But as you <laughs> kind of, you know, identify yourself, the the French side, if we want to put it that way, um, just do not let go of the idea that Mr. Bailey has some, you know, case to answer. Mm. Undoubtedly, there was a, a judgment against him in France last year. The curiosity of that is that, of course, it was in his absence. It was not a trial in the way that we'd understand it. The illogicality is that they tried him in his absence last year where on two prior occasions they tried to remove him so that he might be tried in his presence. And when that failed, they then said, sure, look, let's have a go off him anyway without him being over there. Then they had this charade. And then, you know, back they come and say, can we have him again in circumstances? It's it's an old Napoleonic thing, isn't it, Frank? It it dates back to the Napoleonic days. And Mick's got a great description in his piece in the examiner today in fact of just how it was construed and honest to god it wouldn't get out of cork district court Correct. the way it was run but the french are determined to to get uh, you know mr mr bailey to france to serve this sentence to which they have which they've opposed upon him they, they right. could come back to the supreme court couldn't they well, it isn't. You're right in one sense, PJ, but it's not they who are making the application. The it's it's a it's kind of a legal function, which is vested in the Irish Minister for Justice. So now it's we we are doing this. We we are the Minister for Justice. You know, we we are the citizens who vote in the government. The government contains a Ministry of Justice. The Minister for Justice acts in our name. We the people, and says to the court that there is this request by France to have somebody removed from the jurisdiction. The minister evaluates it, makes the application based upon the evaluation, and goes to the high court. And the high court then yesterday says no, for the third time he's not to be extradited, and sets out the legal reasons as to why. My opinion as a citizen is that there are no circumstances in which the matter should be advanced further. However. You know, at the ministerial level, the minister may take the view that because, you know, you have to exhaust domestic remedy, then you go to the Supreme Court almost for the sake of it. But that's not good enough. 
I mean, I, I set out an illogical proposition, which is as follows. Mm. Here in Ireland, we have an open police file. This is an unsolved crime. If you go to the um, Irish police and Garda Síochána with credible evidence as to anybody's involvement in that crime, the Irish police will take that evidence. They'll process it, evaluate it, and you know, factor it into what is an open investigation into the unlawful killing of Madame Toscan de Plantier. Meanwhile, the Minister for Justice, who is in charge of the guards, goes along to the court and says, can you remove Ian Bailey to France because there's a, you know, there's a conviction recorded against him and there's mm. a 25-year sentence out there waiting for him. But in the meantime, by the way, our own police force don't recognise that. We have an yeah. open file in an unsolved crime situation. I mean, the illogicality of it is extraordinary. Yeah. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility, though, is it, Frank, that, that you know, the minister's, uh, the minister's uh, French counterpart could ring up Helen McEntee and say, well, we want to go to your Supreme Court. We want you to bring, we want you to test this to the full rigours of your legal system. Yeah, and, and that's a political matter. Incidentally, uh, PJ, <clears throat> when we were doing the latest resistance to the High Court in, you know, in, in the hearing in July, we learned that there had been such communication of a political nature. And, you know, quite clearly, there is high politics going on here. We mm. discovered that there was communication from the appropriate department in France to the ministry in Ireland saying, pretty much, get this right and do the right thing. Now, should that occur? I don't know what goes on at high levels of diplomacy, but here down in the real world of you know, Mr. Bailey's life, which has been destroyed by a wrongful association with you know, the crime, you've got to try to resist it through the courts by making the, the, the proper arguments that I think we have made and that were vindicated yesterday. And I mean, try being <laughs> Ian Bailey. I was of, just going to ask you, how, yeah. how is he? I, he was on the show actually only a few weeks ago talking about um, selling his wares at the markets in Bantry, but and he was in good old form that day. But how is he? He has this dual existence, uh, PJ, where he's got to deal with this devastating issue in his life constantly. On the one hand, and he tries to compartmentalise it as best he can, and then he has to try to have another kind of a normal life in relation to the other stuff that he likes to do. You know, as you know about. On the other hand, uh, but trying to remove one from his mind, which is an, an ever-present feature of his existence, is extremely difficult. I, he has dreadfully bad days, I can assure you of that. He has black days, days where he's fearful of what might happen to him in his future. And then he has days where, you know, he manages to put that stuff to one side and try to, to be as normal as he can. But, you know, uh, PJ... He will never get away from this case. It'll go with him until his last day. You know, and that's understandable. It's a burden he has to carry. And, uh, he, he, you know, he, look, yesterday was a day that, where he felt the, the overriding emotion was relief. I mean, mm. right up to yesterday, you know, the judge came out 2 o'clock, started to read the judgment. The judgment took one hour and 20 minutes or so to read. For 20 minutes into the judgment, or 15 or 20 minutes, you know, one wasn't sure what way the judge was going to approach the case. And like, you know, your, your life is on a thread. No, it became apparent from there on in that the legal arguments that he had raised in, you know, in the submissions and so on were going to be successful. But try the life of somebody who does not know whether, you know, he's going to be 
sent to France on a plane to serve 25 years in a jail where he would die for a crime that he um, has not committed, that's a tough call. Mm. The French would make him serve every day of that, which means he'd be 88 before he had a hope of seeing the outside world again. I have a French attorney. I've had his top-class man for the last, I guess, 12 years. He has told me exactly what would happen to Ian Bailey if he were ever rendered to France from this country. It just doesn't bear thinking about it. I mean, I've said, and I don't want to over-dramatise things, one shouldn't do that, but it's a death penalty case. Yeah. You know, that's the bottom line for, for Ian Bailey, were he ever to be removed from this jurisdiction to face the tender mercies of the, <laughs> the yeah. colonial power, which is France. Frank, I know he's your client, and I know, therefore, that, that you're in charge of his side of this. But I guess at the other side of it, there's a grieving family who still don't have an answer. You must feel for them. On a human level, absolutely. We all have families it's a devastating situation for them. So that absolutely, from that perspective, and I said it when I came out of the court yesterday, PJ, absolutely. But what I don't accept is this kind of notion that Ian Bailey owes them justice. Like Ian Bailey is a victim of what has happened, you know, to Madame Duplantier in, in a collateral sense that has been extraordinarily impactful upon him. So this kind of idea that there's quid pro quo that Ian Bailey should be the person to pay the penalty because nobody else is there and he became the only show in town as early as a week or so after that crime was committed is is not acceptable to me. So you have to draw the very fine distinction between absolutely acknowledging, you know, the kind of the, the, the sense of sorrow and all those other emotions that one should feel for a bereaved family on the one hand, but on the other hand saying, but it, but it stops there. My client does not owe you mm. justice. Okay. And, okay. you know, it's very hard to deal with it on a kind of a, 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 almost like a, an optics level where there is this idea out there that because there's a, a, a sense of bereavement and loss and so on on the one hand, that there's a, a kind of an obligation on the other hand. That's not a fair reflection of how things should be. And I do respect their, you know, all of the things. But I have to say that the relentlessness of their pursuit of Ian Bailey in circumstances where they must know that the, that the, that the evidence upon which they relied just does not stand up to scrutiny as Michael Clifford mm. you know, identifies. Michael was at the trial, by the way, so-called over the three or four days in France. Mm. I mean, if you, if you call up Michael, I've spoken to, I didn't go. If you, if you listened to what was put up as, 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 as evidence, you would say, good God almighty, no, his, how his could that conceivably today, be permissible? His, his piece today outlines it very clearly, in fairness. I, finally, Frank, the, the, the question that may well get me told to mind my own business, mm. which you take no, you, you wouldn't hesitate to do so, so I'll ask anyway. Who's paying for all this? You are, in your taxes. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Absolutely, straight up, this is being done, you know, because the minister makes the application to the court, it's a legal process that occurs here. And I mean, I'm not saying, by the way, that the European arrest warrant system in itself is, is a bad system. It's actually a perfectly excellent system when it you know, works the way it's in, in, in which it's designed to work. But it should not be abused. And it's open to abuse. And this is an abuse. You know, for the, 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 the relentless waves of coming after Ian Bailey over here. And, by the way, if he were to go to any other country 
We all know he's a prisoner here. If he went to the UK, they'd start again. If he went to France, God help us, would they start there? If he went to any other country, they would, which is a participant in this scheme, the same thing would start again in any country to which he might ever consider travelling, which he can't. But look, to answer your question, you know, the minister out of the ministerial budget makes the application to the court. The ministerial budget is funded by the taxpayer, you know, therefore, who's paying? We're all paying. But that's a matter that should be addressed to the minister. You know, okay. the minister should be asked questions by our other politicians in the Dáil saying, how far does this have to go? When is this going Frank, to stop? We'll, we'll leave it there for today. I've no doubt there could well be a, a further day. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, BJ. That's Frank Bottomer, solicitor for Ian Bailey. The saga continues, and you're paying for it, lads. We're paying for it. 1850-715-996. Coming up, uh, will the COVID-19 pandemic change the design of the next house you buy? It's a strange question. We'll get to it next. 1850-715-996. Cork's 96FM is now streaming even more music choice. More music choice. Go, go, go. Check out the Hit Mix online for fresh new music. Keep on dancing like you ain't got a choice. And stream the all-new Fit Mix for your workout. <laughs> Listen on your phone and smart speaker. Turn up the volume. Or go, go, go to 96fm.ie. There must be a hundred different angles to the COVID-19 pandemic. But did you ever think that they might be looking at changing the design of houses? Uh, going forward to deal with the pandemic. We know that the virus is less dangerous in a well-ventilated area, preferably the open air, but sure, we're coming into winter now, so we need to be getting indoors. And in the summer, it was easy to open a window or just let the air through the house. Winter is a much different matter, not just for us in our houses, but particularly, I think, for those poor devils in meat plants and direct provision and all of that. There's a very interesting article in the Irish Times by an architect called Orla Hegarty, about how the pandemic is is causing architects and, and designers to look at, at how places are built. Orla, good morning to you. Good morning. I, I read in your piece that in the last century, the, the Spanish flu and the TB pandemics, they affected the design of buildings and, and that maybe COVID-19 will have a similar effect. How, how did they affect the, the, the design, though? Well, people started to realise that uh, if, when it's... Uh, something that you that it's a respiratory illness so people know that you you get covid from from breathing it in and the same problem was with the spanish flu and people will know with tb there was overcrowded housing and sometimes an entire family would get you know tb in those conditions so what happened after the spanish flu was that buildings started to become much airier people started to think about uh fresh air um that there was a lot more uh, openness in buildings you'll have seen a lot of the buildings from the 20s and 30s had a lot more glass than than earlier buildings so bigger windows, uh, balconies, people, you know, sat outside. Even in Dublin, um, we had uh, TV hospitals where they had verandas and beds were moved outside during the day so that people were breathing fresh air. So how we design buildings and and the fresh air in buildings is actually designed all the time. But I think people just take it for granted. Yeah, because you go around, like you said, Dublin now, the historic parts of Cork, you'll, you'll find loads of little small verandas and balconies and you can we don't really have they're even spanish type some of them we don't have the weather for that but that was the purpose was it 
Well, some of the hospitals had that, but I suppose the bigger issue with with apartments particularly is, um, you know, people might say, well, it rains in Ireland, how often do you sit on a balcony? But the big advantage of a balcony is that you have a door that you open so that you fully ventilate the room. So it means that you get fresh air into the room in a very different way than if you just had a window. Uh, And that people will know if you're painting the room or if you burn toast. Um, Opening a door makes a big difference to opening a small window. So balconies and apartments is to do with ventilation. And Mm -hmm. standards in apartments up until recently we had to have generally some cross ventilation in in, uh, apartments so that you could open a window on on two sides and even in Japan they've done some research that in a classroom if you open a door and a window on opposite sides you can ventilate the room within less than 10 minutes but if you only have windows on one side of the room it could take 40 minutes to clear the air in that room so these kind of things in buildings are really important and I suppose over the last 10 or 20 years we've started to become very conscious of energy saving and people have been sealing up their houses and we don't put chimneys you know we don't put chimneys in new houses anymore um, which would have been kept the ventilation moving people were used to drafts in older houses but that actually kept the space very safe so now that we've sealed up buildings we have to start calculating the fresh air differently to make sure that it doesn't build up because the virus builds up a bit like smoke and uh, you know if you're in a room with a smoker in the first 10 minutes you might not be too conscious of it but if you're there over uh, you know half an hour or a number of hours um, you know that that can become very dangerous and it's very similar really with the virus and as we moved out of summer and into this colder winter uh, people didn't realise maybe they, they were doing the same things they were doing six weeks ago but whereas they had the kitchen window open or they sat outside, they yeah. now are doing it maybe in the kitchen with the windows closed. Yeah, because the worst thing at all uh, on a winter's night is to be sitting in watching the television and there's a draft. We, we, we're kind of pre-programmed to block up drafts. But effectively, if we good, good ventilation is going to involve cold air coming in, isn't it? Well, not necessarily, no. There's lots of new systems that you can preheat the air coming in and there's plenty of ways to solve this with technology. But I suppose more immediately what we have to do is get the public message out because um, it's known that most people who get COVID don't actually spread it very much at all and and a lot of people don't pass it to anybody. But there's a small 10 or 20% of people who get COVID who pass it to huge numbers of people and that only happens in bad ventilation indoors. So we can see what's happening in the nursing homes now that they've moved into colder weather and they're not ventilating, that we're getting outbreaks again. That can mm. all be prevented with air purifiers and good ventilation. Uh, we saw it in the summer with the meat plants when they were recirculating air, that people were breathing in the virus and we had outbreaks there. So the really important mm. message is that all of this is pre- preventable, that the two metres isn't a safe distance um, if you're in poor ventilation, and that people need to be outdoors as much as they can. Mm. They need to be ventilated. Two metres is also very hard in most Houses. I mean, if there's three or four people living in a house, the room I'm sitting in right now, like, it'll only hold two of us on two metres, most. Well, in, within a family, it's fine. People don't need to be opening the windows. But what they don't realise maybe is that if you have uh, two neighbours into the kitchen, um, you know, within the public health rules, that's OK. Uh, but in terms of safety, it's not. So we have yeah. rules that aren't really based on science. So you can have all of the neighbours into the kitchen. It might be dangerous in 15 minutes, but you're within the rules. You can maybe sit in a restaurant and people are at the next mm. table. It's not safe, but it's within the rules. Um, so we need to go back to the science for this and 
explain to people that if you are having people into your home, it's the ventilation that's important and, and the overcrowding that's important. If you are in a nursing home, it's really important to air the rooms and that people are not in stuffy conditions. Um, this is, this is architecture and... Sorry to cut across you. This is architecture and science, if you like, working side by side, according to the article. And you say, and this is a striking line, you say clean air is more important than clean hands. It is, and the science backs that up now. I mean, I think that our problem might be that we established our rules back in the spring when a certain amount was known, and this was all new. Um, and we became very obsessed with uh, cleaning surfaces and cleaning hands and cleaning buildings. Uh, in fact, it's now known that, that that's a smaller percentage of the spread than the air. And if yeah. you look at countries like Japan, who immediately acted on um, explaining to people how this spreads and to avoid crowds, Japan has a population of 126 million. Fewer people have died in Japan from COVID than have died in Ireland. So uh, having a different public health message can really make an enormous difference because what you're trying to prevent is those 10% of people with COVID who are causing the pandemic to spread. And if you can you can eliminate those dangerous situations where people gather um, where the air isn't clean, you can actually stop the spread of the pandemic. So coming into the winter in, in the average house, Orla, finally, what can we do to be more ventilation conscious and and safety conscious? Well, Germans have a habit that, that every morning you, you open the windows for 15 minutes and you give the house a good airing. A lot of, a lot of people in Ireland would still do that. Um, yeah. If you have just your family there, obviously you're fine. If somebody in the family um, tests positive or maybe works in high-risk conditions, you might think about how you interact in the house, how you keep the rooms well aired. Um, if somebody, say, works in a, d- a more dangerous setting, they might, they might stop sharing a bedroom with somebody else and they might sleep with the windows slightly open. And if you have people in to visit in your home or if you're maybe going into the home of somebody that you're an elderly person you're caring for or you're helping with meals, um, the really important thing is not just to keep a distance and to wear a mask, but to have the room well aired so that you're not bringing it in. Um, and then if you do meet people or you do have people, try and meet them outdoors, try and go for a walk. Um, and if you meet them inside, to to always have uh, cross-ventilation, so windows and doors open to keep, keep the air moving. Okay. Orla, leave it there, and thank you very much for talking to us on the opinion. And as Orla Hegarty is an architect, ventilation is the key, or one of the key things to do to keep yourself safe. Do you know what? <laughs> I'm just dawning on me now. The Queen Bee has been right all along. As long as we're living together, which is quite a while now, as long as we're living together, when she goes out in the morning, she opens all the windows, which is lovely in July. But when you come in then in November, December, January, it's the same temperature in the house as it is outside the house. And Lord knows, it appears that over all these years, she was right. The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Coming live from Studio 1.5. Good morning, 1850-715-996 is the number. The text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. The email, opinion at 96fm.ie. The Twitter is at opinionline96 with the hashtag OL96. And, of course, the Cork96FM Facebook page. Send us a message and please mark it for the attention of the Opinion Line. Some of your comments held over from the last hour on... Debenhams, and we talked to Valerie about the latest chapter, which is KPMG seeking an injunction against the workers. Good morning, PJ. 
as a mandate shop steward for a prominent retail outlet in Patrick Street. I'd like to add our continuing and ongoing support and best wishes for Carol Ann and Valerie and all the staff as they continue the fight for their entitlement and their rights. And hi, Paul. I'm here in... Paul is here in Mahan, PJ. Just said, and I... Hang on, I'll start again. PJ just said, and rightly so, it's illegal for the debitant workers uh, to, or anyone there to gather and protest when there's only more, 15 allowed outside. So can I ask, why is nothing being done about the protests on the Grand Parade and in Dublin every weekend, especially in Dublin, where a few thousand are protesting? And we saw that again uh, over the weekend. And again on Debenhams, the strength of a worker's strike is enormous, says Tom. A couple of years ago, a man went on strike in a shipyard. The country tried to persecute him. Then they declared martial law. Then Russia tried to crush him. But he brought down the Berlin Wall. Janie, Tom, I don't know if we're looking to bring down Berlin walls in this day and age, but we'll see. John says, I'm dismayed the way the legal system is. When the bank bailout happened, the dog could sit overnight and they could pass an unprecedented, tricky law very quickly. This is a pandemic, an economic emergency for the workers, but I don't see anybody moving to create law on redundancy or to allow safe, socially distanced protesting for the support of the workers. Suddenly... Everything is too hard to do. And remember the very start of this. Do you remember when they suddenly magicked up hospitals and they magicked up social welfare payments overnight? They, they told us on literally on Monday they were broke and on Wednesday they'd loads of money. That's how it happened. And it proved that if you really want it to be done, done it can and shall be. So we'll watch this one with particular interest. 1850 Now we've seen... The photographs, we've seen the documentaries. Some people are lucky enough to have been there and seen the magnificence of Australia's Great Barrier Reef, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's kind of 3,000 small reefs all gathered into one massive, what is one of the wonders of the world, I guess, at this stage. So I suppose doing a scientific census of something that size and that level of diversity is a massive, massive undertaking. And there's a thing starting this week or starting this month called the Great Reef Census, where they're going to basically study the Great Barrier Reef and all to do with it. And wouldn't you just know it? Wouldn't you just know it? There's a Cork woman at the heart of it. Kate O'Callaghan is with Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef. It's evening time there. Kate, how are you doing? I'm very well, PJ. How are you? Good, delighted to talk to you. There might be a slight delay on the line. We'll, we'll, we'll live with that. What part of Australia are you in? Yeah, so I'm up here in Cairn, so up in far north Queensland. So some of your listeners, as you said, who would have been out to the reef would probably have passed through through my way here. Mm. There's so a small touch of an a little bit different here. <laughs> oh, don't you give me grief as well. I get enough of it from my family. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you get involved with the citizens of the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, so I've been in uh, Australia for a little while, and actually my, my now husband is, is from up this way. So we moved up here. I've always kind of been involved in kind of the, the kind of environmental side of things, and, and yeah, I kind of fell into to working in this, um, this this sector and uh, on this exciting project. So what's the purpose of the census? What are you looking at? Yeah, so as, as you kind of touched on yourself, so 
Yeah, the Great Barrier Reef is huge. So it's 2,300 kilometres long. So that's about the length of Italy. So it's absolutely massive. Um, and so only about 5% of that is, is regularly monitored. As you can imagine, you know, the 3,000 reefs, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to get access to. Um, and so as we've seen recently, there's a, a lot more impacts happening, you know, from climate change, uh, particularly. Uh, there's been a number of coral bleachings happening on the reef. Uh, but just given the huge size, you know, it's a really kind of nuanced picture. So you have kind of a patchwork of, of some beautiful reefs and then some kind of quite degraded reefs. And so to help protect it, we really just kind of need to get eyes out on as many reefs as possible so, so researchers and, and managers can kind of target their, their resources a bit better. And are you looking at animal life, looking at fish life, looking at plant life, what? Yes, we're really kind of looking at, at the corals. And um, so, you know, having that kind of baseline understanding of, of what's happening at the reefs, uh, you know, healthy reefs will kind of have abundance of, of animal life anyway. But yeah, focus on the, the coral. And, and what's really unique about this project is to kind of achieve the, the scale we really want to, um, you know, you need to do more than just use scientists. Uh, and managers. So we're working with, uh, you know, tourism boats, with dive boats. Uh, we have some super yachts um, involved, you know, research ships, fishing vessels. And we've kind of, you know, commissioned lots of different boats to, to go to different parts of, of the reef and, and get information uh, that we need and, and to a lot of parts that, you know, aren't regularly um, accessed or even ever accessed at all. This is a bit like a question that someone in first year would ask you. But Kate, what's coral exactly? What is it? We know it's beautiful, but what is it? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a common question. It's kind of is coral a, a plant or, or an animal or, or a rock? But uh, it is uh, an animal, so it's um, it's uh, an invertebrate, um, and it's uh, yeah an animal. Um, it has kind of a, an algae that lives in in symbiosis with the coral, and that's what gives it its its beautiful color, um, and that's what helps it to extract energy from the sun. Uh, so, so it's when not we just colorful rock. Like, it's not just colorful rock. No, so it's a, it's a very complex kind of living organism, and and when we see things like coral bleaching, when you see that white coral. Uh, that's a, a stress response from the animal, uh, and so it kind of expels all of that that algae that lives inside it, um, you know, as a, a stress response. And so then the coral can't create energy uh, anymore. And so if that kind of stays that way for too long, then the coral can can die. And um, but I think it's really important to note that that bleached coral doesn't necessarily mean that that coral is dead. Uh, it can recover um, if the conditions kind of return to normal. It can get that algae and that colour back uh, and recover. Um, but it's just important, particularly with climate change, we're seeing more and more of these bleaching events, and, and so the coral just doesn't have as much time to, to recover. Yeah. Something the sheer size, as we've mentioned, of, of the Great Barrier Reef. Like, there it is, a research lab, two and a half or 3,000 kilometres long. What do you expect to find at the end of all of this? Or what are you hoping to find at the end of all of this? Yeah, so I think it's, um, yeah, so I think we're hoping to find um, these kind of areas uh, that are, you know, really resilient and that, you know, despite all of the threats are really kind of um, recovering well and kind of still looking well. And I think if we can kind of focus efforts to help protect these areas, 
and kind of learn what's going on in these areas that's, that's allowing them to kind of stay, um, you know, looking good and, and resilient. Um, that'll kind of help manage some of the areas that are not doing so well and maybe kind of help build up some of the resilience in those areas. But but really kind of at the end of the day, you know, unless we kind of get, you know, emissions under control, um, you know, none of these efforts are, are really going to do much uh, without that, um, you know, in the next, you know, 10 years. Yeah. Finally, I guess I, I, I'd have to bring up the, the, the story of the of the year, as, as it were, Kate. I spoke to um, a, a doctor in uh, Queensland last week or the week before about public health operations there and how they'd tackled coronavirus. And, and he was explaining to me that they've actually got it pretty much bet, pretty much licked out in, in, in Queensland. What's life there like now? Yes, I kind of, I feel a bit, um, I feel bad kind of telling other people, but li- life's pretty good for me up here in Cairns. We didn't get too much um, too impacted by COVID. We don't have any COVID up here at the moment. Um, and in the pretty much much of Australia, there, there's not a lot of COVID. Uh, so life is relatively normal up here. You know, you still have to hand sanitize and do all that. But, you know, we go to restaurants and, and kind of do things. But but obviously, I think like every other Irish person in Australia, it's um, it's pretty awful not knowing when I'll be able to go home. And yeah. I have a little a little boy turning three, and um, my my folks were supposed to be over here at the moment. And uh, yeah, so that that's really hard not knowing when when I'll be able to get home. And it genuinely is a, a complete blank, isn't it? They, they won't let you. The Aussies, they just won't let you out at the moment. Well, that's right, yes. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a, a dual citizen, and um, yeah, so I, I couldn't even get home if I wanted to come home. I think, which is a bit, uh, a bit scary. So um, yeah, I, I'm kind of waiting for 2021, like everyone else in the world, and hoping um, there'll be some some movement there. But um, yeah, it's uh, pr- pretty sad for the, the Irish community here. I think. All right. Well, listen. All the best to everyone. Uh, to you and the family, and I know that uh, your, your your dad, Manus, and and the rest of the family send their best. We know Manus well. Yeah. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Kate, take yes, care of yourself yes, and take care of everybody. And good luck, yes. good luck with Thanks the census. Thanks so much for having me. Thank Cheers. you. That's, take care. Bye. That's Kato Callahan from Cork with a strong Aussie twang at this stage. And she is involved as citizens of the Great Barrier Reef in the Barrier Reef Census. 1850 7159 Weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. On Cork's 96 FM. Okay, so for 2020, we're creating a time capsule that represents Cork. Pile of paper. Yeah. Definitely need that in there anyway. And what else? And probably a few tins of paint. Two tins of paint. <laughs> a loaf of banana bread and a box of Valium. Casey <laughs> and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool. Celebrating the arrival of the new Skoda Octavia. Book your test drive now at noeldc.com. Exclusively Skoda in Cork City. Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now, we have had a most unusual decision in terms of the freedom of the city this year. We, we got used to freedom of the city being handed out every year. Then it stopped 
for a while. People said it cheapened it a little bit. There shouldn't be an awarding of it every year. And then they were wondering, would it just be done once in the life of every council? You can have that argument a hundred times, but there's a very unusual decision has now been made by Cork City Council with regard to the freedom of the city. It's it's posthumous. It's quite a long time posthumous. Councillor Kenneth Collins, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Outline for us what the council has decided to do. I suppose it started when I, I proposed that with a motion that the Ord Bearers, McCorkland and Max Weenie would receive the freedom of the city um, posthumously. Um, so basically, it went to council, I, uh, and it was to and fro. So I spoke to the, the corporate affairs, they spoke to me, and the Ord yesterday rang me saying, look, he will go ahead with the ceremony. Um, I withdrew my motion then, uh, because it's up to the prerogative of the Ordbearer to, to, to propose the freedom of the city. So what's going to happen now, I believe, is that, you know, a school will be done up. Their names, both Terence McSweeney and Tomas McCartan, will be added to the book that is stored up in the archives, city archives, and that they will be enrolled as citizens of the city, honorary citizens, in the Freeman's book. I think a lot of people would have been surprised, Ken, that neither of them were free men already. Yeah, yeah. I suppose this is history too for the Arbor Joe Kavner and in fairness he 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 agreed that, you know, these men deserve it and you know, the fact that he's after acknowledging that the motion was fair and he accepted the motion, but uh, as I said, I, I did withdraw um the motion for him to proceed with his, his proposal. Um, no, I'm mm. very happy with this. I spoke to Fiona McCartan last night. She's absolutely thrilled for her grandfather that this is happening as well. Like you know, um, how it's going to be done, I don't know. That's up to corporate affairs and Cork City Council to to decide. You know that you know a member of the family, the city manager, the CEO now, and the Arbero would find the book um, to register register their names in in the Freeman. So. I'm delighted. It's, it's, it's a fantastic thing for the people in the city because they're, I suppose, the most popular odd bearers ever that we had in the last mm. hundred years because of what they went through. And yeah, I suppose three odd bearers in one year as well, you know, that year as well yeah. with um, Donald Calicoin as well. Yeah. Might I throw a small spanner in the works and suggest that freedom of the city is not exactly a republican thing like it's it's got a very royal connection to it doesn't it i suppose we're, the way i'm looking at it is that they'd be honored you know and the pandemic hit there was a lot of celebration and commemoration to happen this year uh, but yeah. unfortunately the pandemic did hit um, and, you know, I believe that the, the defence forces were to march through the city. The president of the country was to attend the city as well, and Blackpool, and all these were cancelled. So, yeah, Republicans would look, they were corkmen, they were sportsmen, they were poets, they were businessmen. So, look, they're, 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 like, they're being acknowledged for what they did for the city as well. Mm. So, I'm just happy for him, like, you know. Yeah, well, I think it was more interesting. I picked up my news feed and I saw it. I said, there's an interesting one. I asked myself the question, has this never been done before? Has it ever been done posthumously before? Has a person ever been awarded the freedom posthumously? Never, never. And that's what I'm saying. The, the old bear said, uh, Councillor Joe Cavner, in fairness, he took it upon himself to look at it. And 
give this out as well. And look, he's making history here as well because, as you said, it was never been given out to anybody before. And it's amazing, and it's amazing for everybody because they are sons of the city, both of us, Marshall or bearers. Hmm. Now, there won't, unfortunately, be a ceremony because of the nature of, of the year that we have. Yeah, um, I suppose, look, maybe RT will pick up on this and, 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 you know, live stream it or show it, um, I don't know, through, through the media. But look, the important thing is that their names are registered in the book. Um, and in fairness, Jerry White, historian Jerry White, is, is, is big in behind pushing this as well. So, you know, there's a lot of people want this to happen as well, so yeah. behind the scenes. Okay, all right. So on, is there a particular date has been chosen on which it'll be formalised? I don't know that. Um, I suppose the 25th of the month is Charles Raxini's anniversary as well, so it won't be as fast as that. But look, that's those corporate affairs and, and the workings of council as well, how it's going to be done, where it's going to be done, and the timing as well. No, personally, okay. I would love to be there for it, um, you know, because it's history, and it's history of our city as well that these two martyrs are there as are recognised. Hmm. Maybe something could be streamed online even by, by the council, maybe something done in the Lord Mayor's chamber or something like that that the, the council could live stream. All right, we'll catch up again, Councillor Kenneth Collins. Thanks very much. Thanks. So, posthumously, the former uh, Lord's Mayor, um, Terence McSweeney and Tomás McCurtain are to be awarded the Freedom of the City for 2020. Uh, Lord Mayor Joe Kavanagh was saying that, it's according to Fergal, thanks Fergal on the Executive Research Desk, that you know, doing it posthumously wasn't the major issue because it could have been done with you know their descendants or relatives or relations of them. So that wouldn't have been a thing, but really you couldn't do a ceremony with COVID. So they'll do the formal addition of the men's names to the role of, of freemen of the city. But I'm just fascinated that it was never done before. Absolutely fascinated that it was never done before. I, when I read it last night, I said, hang on a second, I thought they were, they were free men long ago. You learn every day in this game. 1850-715-996. Access all areas on Quark's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Quark's Entertainment. On Thursday, November 5th, the Coco Club presents Mike Morgan live at the Kino. Mike is an award-winning act who's one of Ireland's fastest-growing comedians, both fast-paced high energy and downright hilarious. Mike is a new breed of comic, and you can check out KinoCork.com for more details. Access all areas. Feeling good with Karen Underwood and John O'Brien is part of the new Play It By Ear program taking place at the Everyman Unavailable for live broadcast. Don't miss this heartwarming and joyful night of roof-raising jazz, soul and blues by the Chicago native Karen Underwood. Live show access code will be provided prior to the start of the show and for more details, go to everymancork.com. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96FM. Uh, poor old Siobhan in St. Luke's accidentally put 
salt in her coffee instead of sugar this morning. She thinks this is a load of nonsense. Have our councillors nothing better to be doing with all them people homeless? What are they doing about the living? More in their line now to be helping Katrina Toomey and Penny Dinners than wasting time and money on this. We all respect our patriots and we all want to remember them. But what's the cost going to be? Surely during a global pandemic and the worst recession we've ever had, there are more important and relevant things that they could be doing. I don't think, Siobhan, that there'll be too much cost involved in writing their name onto a list and, and maybe having a small little ceremony and putting it online. And it is, as a very proud Corkman, Siobhan, as a very proud Corkman, I think it's only right that it be done. Do you want to argue with me? 1857-15996. Hi, PG. I'm McSweeney and McCurtain. There was much discussion in the 1920s after their deaths. This is Councillor Kieran McCarthy. There was much discussion in the 1920s after their deaths as to how to honour them. The families at the time chose not to have any honours bestowed upon them, so it's taken a 100 years now to revisit their legacies. Thank you, Councillor. 1857-15996. Have you ever thought of being a foster parent for a child who needs that kind of help. This is National Fostering Week. Runs from the 12th, I beg your pardon, the 12th to the 18th of uh, October. And the the, the numbers are colossal. There's about 6,000 children in foster care in Ireland. And in Cork, about 700 children, just over 700 children, cared for by around 500 families. Some families would have more than one foster child. There is always a shortage. There's never enough foster families for children who need them. And one of the reasons why uh, Tusla holds National Fostering Week, Sarah Healy Coffey is a social worker with Tusla, the Child and Family Agency. Uh, Sarah, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good, good to speak with you. There is always a shortage of of foster carers. What makes a good foster carer? I think what we look for is um, somebody who can give a child a very nurturing and loving environment. We would always say to people if they're interested in, you know, supporting children in the fostering system, they have to enjoy children. I mean, that's that's key to it. And Mm. they have to have respect for them. Um, and be able to re- relate well to children. All these things are key, and that's what goes on to help them make um, very good foster carers. Um, as it being the National me- Fostering Week, I yeah. suppose we want to acknowledge the current carers we have um, in the Cork area, and I suppose nationally, because they are... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Actually doing such an amazing job. And I suppose that's just where, where our slogan has come in, the hashtag slogan, slogan hashtag um, raising amazing, you know. Mm. So, uh, and that's what... That's, uh, you know, it's a fantastic slogan. Yeah, there are, like I said, there are 500 families providing foster care in Cork for 700 and odd children. And nationally, it's something like five and a half thousand families and 6,000 children. There's a lot of children coming into care, Sarah. What, what would be the main reasons why that happens? I suppose there's, a, there's a, a very broad reason why children, a myriad of reasons why children come into care. Um you know, I suppose to go back to the numbers, the figures you stated, like the foster carers in Cork, we have 467 foster carers and we're always looking for more. Um, and that's why every year we have, you know, national, um, we always have a national fostering week. Um, and we would have 726 kids in Cork. Um, nationally, the total figures across Ireland are um, the children in care would be 5,214 and foster carers would be 4,124. Um, yeah. There's lots of reasons why, I suppose, really what we wanted to focus on today is looking for people that would feel that they're empathetic in nature and can give that nurturing yeah. environment and support children that, you know, that do come into the fostering system and that need that support. Um, and, you know, when children do come in, it's it's in different ways sometimes you know it could be they might just need um, a fostering home for a very short period of time and they Mm. could come in through an emergency or you know they might have somebody that's looking for long term or you might have you know another type of foster care which is sort of respite and they're kind of the four different areas and that children for example you might have somebody whose mum is a sole um, parent who has no network, no support, might be going into hospital for a period of time and mm. might need, you know, come to our attention and might need some support for over a couple of couple of weeks or for maybe a more extended period of time. And that's kind of where you look at the short term or you might look at, um, you know, um, you know, short term, I suppose, really, and maybe a little bit yeah. of, or it could be respite. It's, it's all planned. It's planned in advance. Yeah, there's an assessment process, of course. Is it difficult? I would say to you, PJ, that it's a comprehensive process. It has to be. I mean, if you if you imagine really, like, if one of your children came into the into the system in the morning, you'd want to be very assured that where where we place them, and it, and I mean, from a statutory perspective, as Tuslas. Uh, role to make sure that where we place those children that they're safeguarded and that they get the best support they can and that I suppose that's where the matching process comes into it. So it is comprehensive, it is in-depth um, and it really can take different 
periods of time. I suppose there's no point in giving you a time frame because it's so individual. It yeah. depends um, from from couple to couple or person to person how length that how long that process actually takes. Yeah. And now, I suppose with COVID now, you're probably aware yeah. that we've had to tailor and adapt like the whole country really to doing you know, I suppose most organisations and businesses are doing their work in a different way. So we've had to tailor that, how we're actually approaching our work now. And, you know, I suppose we've adapted and um, we've embraced that change, you know. Mm-hmm. Why is there always a shortage of, of foster parents? Like, they, they are paid. It's it's uh, it's quite generous. It's 300 and I think it's 350 or 60 a week per, per child, plus the children's allowance, plus the child has a medical card like it's it's i'm not i don't, I don't want to cheapen it but it, it is it is it's it's good it's good money to do, to provide that service why is there such a shortage of parents do you think sarah well i suppose to start with anyway the the allowance is for the child so it follows the child where the child goes it's for for whatever the child may require um on a weekly basis um you know so that's so the allowance isn't as such the carer is not being paid the money is mm. for the child for the child, everything that the child may possibly want or need. Um, you know, why? People's lives are very different now to what they would have been five or 10 or 15 years ago. I also think there's an awful, awful lot of misconceptions out there around, you know, who is eligible and who isn't eligible. Um, I know that myself, PJ, from being, I'm very involved in the recruitment, um, the recruitment side of um you know, for foster carers, as 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 are most um, my colleagues in the city, yeah. and so, in the so, so who is and who isn't then? Yes, exactly. So I suppose what we would say is that um, our carers are very diverse, but people think to the misconceptions out there is that people thought you know that same people in same sex relationships couldn't apply, people from the travelling community couldn't apply. African or Eastern Europeans couldn't apply, Muslims couldn't apply, disabilities, people with disabilities couldn't. That is not the case. Um, mm. We have diverse, we're looking for, you know, um, we're looking for people from all walks of life. Um, you don't need to have a job. Um, you can have, be living in rental accommodation. You can be single. Mm. You can be over 40. And I suppose what I have found... Yeah, here's a, a, a question just up on my screen here. Sarah, uh, mm. can a couple in their 50s be foster parents? Absolutely, absolutely. And people in their 50s have an awful lot of, they have a huge skill set. Um, if they've already had children of their own, they bring that skill set with them. Um, and the experience of rearing their own children or being exposed to, to, to their own families um, and children mm. within their families. And I suppose both, you know, people can work and you can work full time. It's no longer a necessity that you're at that you have somebody at home. It, that used to be the criteria. It's no yeah. longer the criteria now. Oh, really? Is that gone? That one of the, at least one parent had to be at home all the time? Yes, that is not part of the criteria now. Now, let's be, let's be clear here. It will, I suppose, change your availability. So, for example, if there's both, if, if you know, you're in a situation where there's two carers and both of you are working all day, you're not going to be available to take a newborn baby that comes mm. into the care system. So, I suppose, you know, that's then where the availability comes in. But no, you can work full time, um, hmm. you know, so that is 
that is um, no longer uh, the yeah, criteria. You, you, say, you say the allowance is, is for the child, and, and of mm-hmm. course it is. But is, is there any provision for the actual foster parent who's doing this wonderful service? We do an awful lot of work. Uh, for starters, there's an awful lot of support. So for starters, from a fostering perspective, and with us in Tusla, what we actually do is you would be given a fostering. What we, what we know, our terminology, the language is called a fostering link worker. So mm. every foster carer out there has a link worker. So they have somebody who they link in with if they have any queries. That's around. their own social worker, other than That's the child's own social absolutely. worker. That's the and family's own social. And how often will they see that person then or hear from well, that person? Well, I suppose we, it really depends on um, how, how often they need, um, how often they need the support. We're available. We give the support, you know, when it's required, we give it. We also have a statutory obligation, as you know, to do, um, I suppose, a minimum, a maximum, a minimum visit of four a year. I would have hmm. to say from my own case, listening from lots of my colleagues in Cork, I mean, I'd have some carers that I, I could do 16 or 20 or 30 visits a year, depending. It depends really on the carer's skill set, what's happening with the children that are living in their homes, and what kind of support is needed around that. Hmm. So where does one go about applying? Days. Sorry? Where does one go about applying? Okay, so I think which is fantastic because it's National Fostering Week, we have now put, um, we have a, a free phone number, which anybody can ring that, and it's a national number. It, it's, so they can ring that number, which is 1800 226 771. Um, and they can express their interest and they can express the area that they're interested in actually um, working in. And then there's also an email um, address that they have. And I suppose we're all with technology now, everything's by email. So mm. if they go into www.tusla.ie and, and, and click on the fostering element, they, they'll actually see the email address. I can give it to you now, PJ. It's tusla.fostering at tusla.ie. You know, mm. but I suppose what we would be looking for, some of the attributes we would be looking for, is that there needs to be a degree of flexibility with the carers that come on, that come into the system, um, because you know it's very important that they are available for training. So we, so that's where kind of flexibility, and mm. I suppose um, we like to look at training our foster carers if there's an area that they find they've got a deficit, um, and we have a very comprehensive training a roster now and we're constantly changing and updating and looking at doing that mm. I suppose and we listen to our carers as well you know yeah. what their needs are um, you know and I suppose technology is a big thing now we've got a new yeah. um, you know we, we, you know we the, mm-hmm, the link worker it just dawned on me here um, unfortunately you know children who might have come from a, a difficult background shall we say Do you know particularly teenagers, they might be inclined to kick off a little bit at night time, particularly now, for example, in the middle of the pandemic, we're encouraging them to stay at home and not go anywhere. Like, is the link, is the link, so is that a 24-hour service? The link, I would say, so I suppose we're we're available from nine to five. I suppose if you speak to any of my colleagues, they'll say to you they work after that and as you probably know yourself from any social workers you'd have contact with PJ a lot of us would work outside of that remit but we do have a 24 hour out of hour service number for foster carers um, and that was set up last year and I suppose we set that up because we were listening to our carers nationally of mm. what they felt their needs were but I suppose we were very lucky in Cork we've always had 
a one available at long weekends because very often it's very often on the long weekends when something might arise where they might need that extra support. And it's just to have, you know, somebody to listen to you and to give you some support around that. Um, You were talking about teenagers. There are certain carers who absolutely love caring and have a a very good skill set around teenagers and who will only care for for teenagers. So Mm. I suppose it's really around your own what you feel comfortable um, around your own skill set and yeah. where you feel you have the experience in giving that support to children. Finally, uh, kind of a sad little message in here. Um, a, a, a listener said her son um, was put in, into foster care outside of Cork. Everything was okay, except that he wasn't allowed to bring to bring his dog. That, that would be kind of sad, wouldn't it? You know, actually, that can come up now and then within our role. Um, I, I've been very lucky in that any of my carers that I've approached have really have have embraced taking a dog. Now, you know, and have embraced taking animals and rabbits and hamsters and things like that. So a lot of the carers is, will take them. But then, of course, you know, you might have a situation where the carers might already have four or five dogs. You're adding another yeah. one into the mix. So I suppose it's all relative and it's all very individual. But I suppose I've been very lucky in any of, from my experience, my foster carers have always accepted a child that comes with their animal. And, you know, there's something very um, therapeutic in that for the children. You know, well, obviously, if, if, if a child's best friend is his doggy, you don't want them separated. Mm-hmm. Just give me that number again, Sarah, before I let you go, the, the free okay. phone number. Sure, there is. It's um, 1800 226. Seven seven one. Okay. If anybody wants to get, know more about fostering, they can certainly call that number. Thank you very much, Sarah Healy Coffee. Yes. Go, can I just acknowledge again? I suppose the foster carers that are on the ground doing that work, because I think one of my colleagues said gave us a fantastic. We were speaking about it yesterday, and they said they're ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs, and they have positively transformed the lives of vulnerable children. And I suppose just so that they know that Tusla is the organisation that provides statutory fostering service to, yeah. to um, the public. And There's private as well, but we won't go into that today. That's a different matter. There is private carers. fostering. Yeah. So if anybody out there that loves, to, loves children, um, please give us a call um, on that number. All right. OK. Listen, Sarah, thank you very much for your time today. Sarah Healy Coffee who's a social worker with Tusla, the Child and Family Agency. It's fostering, National Fostering Week, if you'd like to get involved. 1850-715-996. On fostering, did you know, says this message, if on antidepressants you can be refused for fostering, if you have a dog on the so-called dangerous list, you can be refused for fostering. The assessment process is rigorous, very rigorous. Many, many pages of paperwork. I've seen it, I've read it. It's difficult. It's a long and a difficult process to get assessed for fostering. But look, they are looking for them this week. So if you want to get involved, you know where to go. Uh, Dennis wants to know, if you have a major criminal record for theft, can you still foster? Well, you have to get Garda vetted. I know that much. That kind of answers your question. Frank says, we then see on this morning's paper, Tusla have failed to put aftercare plans in place for 300 people. They're failing foster kids big time. And that's from Frank. 1850-715-996. Just something else to do with COVID. And Phil in Cove has given me a right telling off, which I'll get to that after the news. 
But this huge number of tests and procedures uh, have been cancelled for people with arthritis during the course of, of the pandemic. And they're a very vulnerable group. Many people with many different kinds of arthritis have been cocooning because their immune system is badly compromised by it. Uh, one of them, I think, is Kira Corton. Kira, good morning. Good morning, TJ. How are you? Good. Can you boost that a little bit for me, Wayne, there, please? Boost that line. Um, you were diagnosed... I can't pronounce it. Help me here. What have you got? Uh, spondyloarthritis. Spondyloarthritis. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically an umbrella term for um, inflammatory arthritis diseases that primarily affect the spine, but other joints as well. So people may have heard of um, psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis as examples of those. Painful, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. I suppose in my case, um, at the moment, it, it can vary, I suppose, but lots of people at the moment, it's, it's uh, affecting my back, pelvis, hips, shoulders, elbows, hands, knees, feet, you know, and ligaments and tendons as well as the joints themselves. So it, it's quite all-encompassing, to be fair. Yeah. And am I right in saying that the, me- the medication that you would take compromises your immune system, so it's been a very rough few months for you? Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm on a biologic, which is to try and stimulate and restore the ability for my body to fight. Um, uh, it's like in terms of the immune system itself. So my immune system is working against my body. So the biologic helps to kind of alter that. Mm. But it puts me at high risk. And I'm also on a DMART, which is a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug. Um, and again, mine is an immunosuppressant, so I have a, a double whammy of immunosuppressant drugs in my system, and I'm also asthmatic, so I'm in the very high-risk category. Um, but I have two small children, so as yeah. you can imagine... How, how do you tie that in? I mean, that's, that's a busy life, two small it children. It is, yeah. Now, unfortunately, I, or, or fortunately, depending, I suppose, on circumstances of COVID, but I, I gave up my full-time job um, suffering symptoms of the disease, which at the time I didn't realise exactly what was going on. Um, but with two children at home during COVID, it's proved very tricky because I've had to restrict their movements in order to protect myself and therefore us as a family, if you know what I mean. So, what kind of stuff yeah. have you missed, though, over the last few months that you, in terms of your illness? Um, well, I suppose on a personal level, I've missed out on a lot of the social interactions. Now, a lot of people have, but I've had to be extra careful. So we basically were, you know, during the initial lockdown, we were at home pretty much all of the time. Um, my husband was doing the grocery shopping. He was working full time throughout. So, you know, it was a very difficult time for us as a family and continues to be with, you know, restrictions increasing. So yeah. the anxiety that goes at the with moment, it. With, with the high yeah. numbers at the moment, are you nervous that it'll come into the house by accident? Yeah, I mean, it would be. And we're super careful. But, you know, it. If being careful doesn't, you know, exempt you from from catching COVID. You know, everybody is is open to it. But I'm at higher risk. My children worry about it, particularly the older of my two kids. He's just turned ten, um, and I have a daughter eight and a half. So they're aware of the risks, and you know, we're having to constantly remind them to be extra careful than other kids might be. But they're in school, which is the best place for them in a lot of ways. But I had huge anxiety around sending them to school in I'm September. I'm thinking that. I mean, it's it's not yeah. so much going to school could harm them, but what they might bring home on their little hands. Yeah, but but lockdown was really hard on them too. So. You know, we have to try and live with this disease, but it, it's very difficult because you, it's counterintuitive uh, to be told you have to be here among, among the very vulnerable. And I'm not over 70. There's lots of people, you know, my age and a lot younger that are constantly being reminded you're vulnerable, but yet you send your yeah. children to school. You know, so it, it's quite counterintuitive to do that. Um, but it's the, the right thing. Of, 
the, the prospect of a second wave getting hold must frighten you. Yeah, yeah, and you know we've had to cur- curtail their activities too. So you know not being able to allow them to participate in things because of the risk to me. Um, so I have you know as a mother, I have a lot of guilt around that that my children's behaviour and their activities has had to change because of me. So. Um, and I think a lot of people with chronic illness would feel like that, you know, particularly at the moment, you know. Okay. Well, people would be thinking of you and others. Uh, you're you're a bit too young to be cocooning as much as you've been doing. Not not that anyone is should be cocooning as much as you've had to. But I wish you the best of luck as we come into the winter. Does, yeah. Well, does if winter I, affect your pain, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. I had a recent flare actually, and it, it coincided with you know um, the change in weather and the change in temperature and stuff like that. So a lot of people with arthritis are would find that as well, you know, um, and any kind of stress can put somebody into a flare, which clearly in a pandemic is going to be a serious issue for a lot of people. Um, so there's a lot of people really struggling during this, um, you know, mental health is an issue for people with arthritis at the moment in yeah. particular, um, with the, you know, the level of anxiety and concern about the uncertainty of what happens if I get it, as in my case yeah. and lots of others. So, you know, it's a lot. And I think there's a lot of talk in, in the media um, and people like me are seeing it that, you know, a lot of people that are being referred to as vulnerable and the over 70s in particular, but there's an awful lot of people that are very vulnerable and that aren't anywhere near 70. So it, yeah. I suppose it's just to create awareness of that. Yeah. You know, that there's people, I mean, I'm 46, but there's lots of people a lot younger than me, you know, yeah. that are also struggling with this, you know. And, and I think it's important remember. that to remember that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you see somebody, you know, alongside you in the supermarket, you know, they may not be over 70, but they could be very vulnerable and very nervous about yeah. you coming near them. So it's to kind of bear that in mind. And, you know, social distancing and all that's very important. Claire, um, for no reason other than time, I'm going to have to leave it there because I'm running yeah. short. But I Can wish I you well say, if, Go on. Thanks, PJ, yeah. for doing the conversation with us. And uh, and also, I just want to say that if anybody's looking for help or support, just because it is a difficult time, the Arthritis Ireland Cork branch page offers plenty of information. And there is also a national helpline as well available through arthritisireland.ie. Okay, thanks for that, Kira. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. There's a big button that is in front of us in the main studio, and there is now coffee across my table here because I reached for the button and of course it's not there and I hit the coffee but we'll be alright live from Studio 1.5 good morning 1850-715-996 text to whatsapp 083 396 96 96 the email opinion at 96mm.ie lest I should forget to thank him before we finish Wayne Hilton pushing the buttons for us this morning back at base Phil was on from Cove Uh, This is happening more and more now, and I don't know whether it annoys me or whether I need to be kind about it. Phil says, guys, the Irish media, including yourselves, would want to cop the feck on. We all know bad news sells. It's one thing to scare impressionable adults, but it's another thing to petrify children who are eating their breakfast and on their way to school with every news bulletin leading with, we can still have Christmas. Christ almighty, like, as if kids haven't had enough of a rough time over the past six months, not being allowed hug grandparents, no play dates, no holidays, being treated like disease-riddled animals when entering a shop. What shops have you been in? Uh, Last week being told they can't go trick-or-treating, and now they think Christmas is going to be cancelled. It's unacceptable, unprofessional, and downright insensitive. Give it a break, for Christ's sake. Okay, Phil, breathe, will you? Breathe a small bit. Certainly have heard no talk 
about Christmas can still be saved on this programme because that's nonsense. Christmas will happen. The 25th of December will still fall. We'll still have, hopefully, the turkey and the ham. We might be restricted a little bit in what we can do. We spoke to one of Santa's helpers a few weeks ago who ensured us that Santa will be able to come to every little boy and girl. Uh, Santa doesn't need to worry about green lists or quarantine or anything like that. Santa doesn't have to worry about that at all. And we're in weekly contact with the opinion line to make and, and the North Pole to make sure that that is the case. As for Halloween, okay, personally, can I say if I never saw Halloween again, it wouldn't bother me. But I'm sure that they'll find a way around it. But go give over now, which are un- unacceptable, unprofessional and downright insensitive. Breathe a small bit. 1850-715-996. At, well, coming up uh, later this hour, a remarkable story um, from a very courageous young woman who's gone into phenomenal detail with me uh, on her battle with her mental health that started when she was only a little girl aged eight or nine. She's 20 now, and it's still going on. 1850-715-996. Let's go to UCC, though, where they have a Consent Awareness Week. There are pictures in the papers this morning of students launching uh, a not-asking-for-it campaign. Interesting set of photographs in all of the papers this morning. The Student Union also did a study of sexual experience of students, and they found some major problems. Jamie Fraser is the welfare officer at UCC Students' Union. Hi, Jamie. How are you, PJ? Good morning. Good. What did that survey find? So basically, the sexual experience survey was carried out by the Union Students of Ireland, um, surveying over 6,000 students. And this survey found that uh, 29% of females, 10% of males, and 28% of non-binary students uh, reported non-consensual penetration by incapacitation, force, or the threat of force. That's Um, a fairly blunt description now. A very blunt description, but I suppose that's the way we have to look at things now, PJ, you know, that this is the reality of it, you know, and statistics such as this show us that we have a lot of work to do with regards to this issue, you know, and that's why we kind of launched our consent week here, the UCC's first consent week I may add in UCC, yeah. Is it? It is our first fully dedicated Consent Awareness Week run by Students' Union, yeah. So we're very happy to work with organisations such as SATU in the city, uh, that's a sexual assault treatment unit, um, and also various societies here in UCC uh, to get this up and running, you know. Now, talk to me about the photograph that's in the newspapers this morning. Describe it for me and, and what its purpose is. So basically, we kind of, with regards to that photograph, that was kind of a collab between the Students' Union um, and was kind of spearheaded, really, by um, the Fashion Society and also um, the Feminist Society here in UCC. And kind of what we wanted to highlight is that, like, basically, regardless of what clothes you're wearing, that, you know, that is never consent to, to sex, you know. Um, for example, we had different outfits throughout the, throughout the picture. I kind of wore just what I'd, what I'd wear to work every day. Uh, one of the girls wore something that she would wear to the gym, and another girl wore what she would wear in a night out, you know. And just that, regardless of outfit, that we can never victim blame, that it's unacceptable, and that, you know, when the sexual assault occurs, it is always the fault of the, uh, the perpetrator, not the victim, you know. Mm. You you mentioned that people, a lot of people, subjected to most unacceptable uh, behaviour. I put this as gently as I can, Jamie, and I was a student one time. You know, casual sex is kind of part of going to college. So where does one draw the line? Yeah, yeah, I suppose in a sense, you know, there is that kind of... Well, I mean, no strings sex, shall we say. It's part of going to college. 
Yeah, yeah, I suppose that that is, that is part and parcel of going to college, you know. Um, but sex should always be it should always be safe. It should always be and always have consent, you know. So it should like consent should always be ongoing throughout, you know, sexual practice. It should be mutual, and um, it sh- it can change at any time. You know what I mean? So in a sense, it should always be consensual and accepting from both parties, and it should never never force or incapacitation is never an excuse for sex, you know. Do you have a service that you can offer, say, your your welfare office there now, can that offer a service to someone who feels that they've had an experience they should report? Oh, 100%. I recently just uh, drew up uh, in connection with uh, services in university, um, uh, sexual misconduct protocol for the student union welfare officer. And I've also been trained in disclosure training, which is training for students to, if they would like to come and report the sexual assault, that I'm trained to listen to it, um, but only to listen to it and re- report to the relevant bodies. Yeah, can, um, can you help them to make a statement to the Gardaí, for example? Yeah, I could, I could arrange that for them. I can also put them in contact with uh, student health here in UCC. Um, could also put them in, in contact with um, the Rape Crisis Centre in Cork and also with the Sexual Assault Treatment Unit, you know. Okay. And uh, the consent week, I mean, it must be difficult to conduct any kind of a week now with, with nobody on campus. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a big challenge, you know, but um, I suppose in a way we kind of, um, we, I've got a, an array of talkers from the Union Students of Ireland, um, from the consent intern doing workshops up in um, Trinity College, and also from the Sexual Assault Treatment Unit and various other organisations are giving talks through Zoom, um, to which we've compiled a link tree and is available on our social media as if people would like to tune into the talks, all they have to do is click on the link and open the Zoom app and they'll be taken straight into the talk, so we want to make it accessible to everyone as possible. Uh, we didn't want to go ahead. We didn't want, sorry, to for this year to go ahead without us taking a stand on this issue because it's just that important to us here in the students' union as representatives of the student body. It's our responsibility to take a stand for issues such as this. So we're only glad to do so and facilitate it online. You know. Sure. Just on a broader note, finally, with regard to college and you being an officer of of the union, Jamie, the decision now to move everything online uh, for this entire semester is is that doable? Is that physically doable for for all students and all departments so in a sense yeah so I, there was a recent statement regards to UCC that you know that they've decided to put as much online uh, as possible where but where where possible with regards to the rest of the semester um with it being doable for students you know well will it will online learning ever be fully doable for students um i don't think so in a sense you know um a lot of students are in abusive homes a lot of students are in homes where there is bad connection etc and uh, we've the government have done some work in releasing kind of laptops for students which i've kind of been coordinating in the scheme down here um but i think the the real take-home message is that um that's and what i've kind of seen come to me the most is that students need clarity PJ you know like you know like there was so much disarray with regards to students and their living conditions and paying rent and stuff if they were only on college for one or two hours a week and we've been very vocal about that as you know and you know I think in a sense is that was it doable for departments in some instances yes um, and you know for regards to students just every support needs to be put down as possible so students can flourish and that no student is at any academic or social disadvantage to uh, this year you know Okay, and I take it you're working with the college authorities to make sure that happens. Jamie, thank you very much for thank today. You, Jamie Fraser. Cheers. Jamie Fraser is the welfare officer with UCC Students Union. If you need urgent help um, for anything to do with sexual relations, consent, if you've been sexually assaulted, if anything has happened to you that you feel you need to talk to someone now, 
call 1-800-496-496 1-800-496-496 that's the Cork Sexual Violence Centre Mary and her team will take incredible care of you incredible compassionate care 1-800-496-496 we've been told that one of the most important things we need to do this winter as we deal with wave two or the second generation COVID-19 is to make sure we all get the flu jab those of us who've never gotten it before are being encouraged to get the flu jab. And I spoke a week or two ago with Dr. Mike Thompson, who had a brilliant idea to set up a drive-through flu vaccination clinic. But they're running into trouble because the blasted thing is running out. They're out of vaccine. There's a real shortage of flu vaccine. Let's find out the latest next. 1857 96 FM. Girlfriend and boyfriend. Girlfriend has said to boyfriend previously, what would you like for your birthday? And he said he wanted a PlayStation 5. The day has arrived. He walks into the kitchen, sits at the table where the PlayStation 5 is wrapped in paper. His palms are sweaty, knees weak. Arms are heavy. The whole family are gathered around the table. Everyone's got phones out. He rips them open. So the PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation 2. <laughs> Set the tape together. <laughs> Casey and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool celebrating the arrival of the new Skoda Octavia. Book your test drive now at noeldc.com. Exclusively Skoda in Cork City. Cork's 96FM. Cork's 96FM. Just an interesting story we're keeping an eye on there before I go to Dr. Mike uh, in London. St. Thomas's Hospital, isn't that the one that Boris Johnson was taken to when he had the COVID? Uh, they've been a, the, the, the hospital has been locked down. Armed police are sealing it off at the moment. That's, that should be interesting. See where that takes us. 1857-15996. Now, Dr. Mike, good morning to you. PJ, so PJ, this, this, I I'd like yeah. to talk about it's the adult vaccine, I suppose, we're experiencing delays with. Not, not ah, shortages, yeah. delays with. Plenty of kiddie vaccines from the 2 to 12-year-olds. And it's the same for all GPs and all pharmacies and all occupations and hospitals. So I don't want to create a panic or a run on vaccines. We will all get there eventually. Why is there a shortage? Internationally, PJ, I suppose uh, with coronaphobia this year, everyone is heightened. They really want to make sure they can lessen their disease burden, play their part. Um, People who would normally not take it up are definitely availing of it. We have waiting lists Mm. here. And we are booked out in the clinic. So I do think people are just, it's something that they can control. There's an element of fear out there. So getting the flu vaccine is something proactive they can do. Um, that coupled with, I suppose, we're a small market for the vaccine manufacturer, Ireland. And we did order more than last year. So we should be okay for the eligible population. It will probably be a little bit late, but we traditionally vaccinate early in Ireland here. So before Christmas is going to be okay. We The reason we tend to do it before Halloween in our general practice traditionally in Ireland is just due to our, we get very, very busy after November, December. We, you know, the thoughts mm. turn to other things. So we'll have How to many doses a year would we administer in Ireland, do you think? Less than, of the adults, it's usually less than about the million. Right. So we, I think it was 1.2 million ordered last year by the HSC. I don't think everyone took it up. This year they've ordered 1.35 million. They've broadened the cohort a little bit and add to that. So you're increasing the demand. You're, you're reducing the supply for a little while. 
So that's why there's a little bit of fear out there. But I just yeah. encourage all the listeners, we will get there. We will get there. Oh, you'll get there, yeah. And, and is there a supply chain issue, Mike? We hear yeah. from all sorts of different businesses, supply chains are an absolute nightmare. Is the same the case with the, with the vaccines? Sanofi Pasteur, a French company, so I think they've just huge demand. Ireland is just but one market there, so it is coming in kind of more in dribs and drabs than where you are used to. Now, the HSC are, I mean, they are not at fault for this at all. They've been very, very good. They're communicating with us all the time. There is a sense of frustration, but if it's not there, it's not there. So we're just having to, you know, GP, we can mobilise, adapt, and we can do that quite quickly. Um, it's a little frustrating, but I definitely want to reassure everyone it may take a little bit longer, okay? Yeah. But the peak flu season is usually after Christmas. Yeah. So we, we, we will get a call here now to eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Caller booked into your drive through for Saturday. Got a notification that yep. it'll be another two weeks before they get yep. their dose. Will they still be able and, to get it? Will stock and, last? Like and. So we don't know, PJ. And again, we are looking at that tonight. The GP is involved in it, and the difficulty is if we defer those people again. I suppose, you know, just messing everyone around a little bit. But we would ask people to, to, I suppose, stick with it if they can get it anywhere, their GP, their pharmacy to avail of it. We're still going to run the clinic. Um, it may well be late into November before we're able to kind of do it properly again, which is a pity because I think it was a great venture. It was very innovative. We were all excited. It was fierce uh, buy-in, I think, from the local community into it. We spoke a week or two ago about it. Were, were you mm. surprised at the uptake? Not at all. No, no, no. I think definitely not this year. And I suppose the benefit of it, I suppose, is it's quick, it's safe, convenient. People will get the vaccine. It's like lots of my GP colleagues, they are doing their own novel ways of walk-through clinics or evening clinics or Saturday morning clinics. And I think all our patient populations, they're very appreciative of the fact that we're coming in to do this, you know. It, it, it is at the end of the day to reduce and help out a little bit. And if we can keep the pressures off the hospitals and even GPs are, and out-of-hours appointments in the winter, that will definitely help. Is it is it a practice for, for when we eventually do, we hope, get a COVID vaccine that, you know, drive-throughs like yours might be the way to go? I think it's a template. Um, I think it's I think it's very effective. You can get through very, very big numbers very, very safely. I suppose we know the flu vaccine is very, very safe and effective and how long we need to monitor people. The COVID vaccine, we don't know. It may be very, very similar. But I do think it's something that could be replicated throughout the country. But obviously that's something I think that, you know, public health and the HSC would be would be leading the charge on, definitely. Okay. Finally, Mike, before I let you go... Uh, Ken, so what your your message is? Keep contacting us. Keep booking wherever you want to try and get your vaccine. Keep keep looking yeah. for it. I think what we're probably saying to repeatedly ringing the GPs and the pharmacists probably won't help either. So generally, what most practices are doing now is taking a waiting list, and when you will be contacted in due course. So to, to stop, keep ringing. I think that sometimes can just block up the the phone lines, which we need to keep open, yeah. especially at this time. So people, most practice now have kind of moved to a waiting list policy. Take your name, and they'll contact you then. And we we'll probably do it more in drabs like that. As for the uh, drive-through clinic, people should just keep an eye on their emails, and we may well have to defer people again. Unfortunately, it is outside of our control, PJ. Okay. Here's a comment which is interesting. Um, Aaron says, I'm all for the elderly and vulnerable families getting it. They should be prioritised. Then whoever wants to get it, then do get it. But people saying, I'm going to get it for the first time ever to protect people, will actually know you'll be denying them their flu jab. What would you make of, that, make of that? You are. There is. So it's not this year whether you are private or have a medical card. You need to be eligible this year. 
So if you have a medical card but you're not eligible, you may not get the flu vaccine. In fairness to the HSC, they are giving it to the their, let's say, vulnerable population, first of all. And again, it's, if you don't mind, PJ, I'll just run through the list. It's everyone over 65. It's all children between 2 and 12, and there's no shortage of those vaccines. It's right. any healthcare worker, healthcare administrator, social workers, healthcare assistants, home helps, any person who's pregnant. And then the traditional list, the long-term conditions, so diabetes, asthma, heart disease, cancer sufferers, but also their household contacts or carers. So who should get it? Everyone who is eligible to get it, quite a lot of people. Um, so we, this year, all GPs and pharmacists, I'm sure, are only giving it to those who are eligible on the list. Okay. Patience is a virtue uh, <laughs> at all times. Mike, we leave it there. Thanks, Thanks very much. Well, Cheers. That's Dr. Mike Thompson. Uh, they're, they're, the vaccines will come. They'll get them. It's just slow. Actually, I've been talking to some people over the last few days, and we might do this at some point in the days to come. There's a massive thing with supply chains now that's kind of quietly there clothes electrical items pieces of furniture anything you might want for your house like waiting eight or nine weeks for something that normally would take two or three and i'm hearing a lot about it we might look into it in the days to come 1850-715-996 for 20 minutes of the best music mix and everything cork on cork's 96 fm i'll play cork's best music mix i'll bring you our daily facebook question and i'll also bring you the stars robert de niro on lockdown it's interesting it's interesting it's kind of like a, a science fiction movie but it's real Kyle horan on lewis capaldi first time i've ever met much thought he was a lunatic and Harry Styles on Harry Styles. So I love being in the studio now, kind of writing and working stuff out with everyone. I love that. I've always loved performing. I still very much do. Online, on your smart speaker, on the Quark's 96FM app and on FM. Ken Tobin. Weekdays from midday. With the White Rabbit Barn Barbecue. A brand new look with the same great food and service. See whiterabbit.ie. Quark's 96FM. This is Quark's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. As always, I've upset some people by mentioning that I don't like Halloween. I'll hold on to those comments for a while, though. They have people get very upset when I say I hate Halloween. Well, I'll say it again. I hate Halloween. Anyway, 1850-715-996. Just a, a traffic update of a sort. Caller is driving in from Douglas in a taxi. He has just seen two middle-aged women driving straight through red lights at pedestrian crossings. They're a disgrace, he says. One was in a Merc, the other a BMW. Now, if that was two young fellas going through with sporty cars, they'd be in trouble. This is scandalous. The lights were clearly red and they went straight through them. Uh, what if there were children crossing? Young fellas get the blame for everything. Okay. 1850-715-996. Now, this is kind of a tale of two Facebook messages or two Facebook posts, four years apart. One we were shown and the other, we, the, the, the young person herself contacted us to tell us she'd written it. And there are two remarkable Facebook posts by a very remarkable young woman called Claire. Let's hear her story. Claire, I know you're nervous. So just hang in there. We'll be grand. This is kind of a, a comparison between 
two Facebook posts. One that your family drew our attention to back in 2016 and one that you posted this week. Yes. Let's go back to 2016. You were in a, a bad way. Yeah, I was. I, um, I was always very anxious as a child. And so then when I was in second year, I started getting panic attacks in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't tell anyone because I was very nervous. I didn't really, I was kind of ashamed. I didn't want anyone to know. And then I had to leave school in January of second year. And I was home. I was well. First, I was. I stayed in bed then for months. I didn't get out of bed. I felt like the world around me wasn't real. That the people weren't real. Mm. Um, that I just wouldn't get out of bed. I didn't go anywhere. Was it that even getting out of bed could bring on a panic attack? Yeah, and yeah. just kind of the feeling of getting up was a big. Yeah. It was a big challenge, just even going downstairs was a challenge. You were only 16 at the time. That must yeah, have been kind 15. of scary. 15, that must have been scary. Yeah, it was very scary. And I um, I started getting homeschooled then, which was a really tough process because it, it was hard to get them at the time and hard to find teachers who were willing to do it out of school hours. Um, and I was getting homeschooled, but I just wasn't improving myself. So I was I was with CAMS at the time. I first when I was nine I was with a um a private counsellor, but then when I was eleven I was referred to CAMS. So this goes right back to when you were a little girl. Then. Yeah, definitely. And so I was referred to CAMS and that's where then they decided that I should that I needed to go to Saint John of God's in Dublin. Before we go to that experience uh, talk to me about a panic attack. What What is it like? What does it feel like? Um, it's kind of like, for me, it was, it never really showed outwardly because people would always say to me, oh God, I never thought you don't look like the kind of person that would have mental health problems. And that was always the reaction I got when I told people that. So with the panic attack, it's kind of like your whole body freezes. And for me, it was like, I was I wasn't even there anymore like I couldn't breathe properly I would get like heart palpitations and my I'd be sweaty my hands my palms would be sweaty and it was just a horrible horrible Is it a feeling of fear like that comes over Yeah definitely for me it was for me I've always been worried about death and dying so it was that was where my panic attacks led to oh my god I might faint I might die I might that something bad will happen to me. That was always the fear. Okay, and that's why you avoided school and yeah. you stayed in bed because if you didn't get up, then it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Right, right. And it all goes back to being a little girl and, and all that. So take us to the, the John of God's thing. What's it like going in there as a teenager? So, was, or anywhere like that? It was really scary because I did not know what to expect. I think I found out on the Friday, it was in May of 2016, that I was going in. And then it was the Monday that I went in. Um, and then you were assigned like a key nurse. Yes. To show when, you when you were told you were going in, Claire, yeah. how did you react? I I think I blamed my parents because I said, you know, I, I don't want to go to this place. You know, because you always hear about, you hear about them, but never really good experiences. 
so I didn't I didn't want to go I didn't want to go away from home I didn't want to have to go all the way up to Dublin because I was very like I'd never gone anywhere so mm. it was a really big deal for me and you wrote that first Facebook post when you were just gone in there yeah. and your parents contacted us to share it and to ask us to share it with, with our listeners which we did at the time how was the hospital experience how long were you there I was there for three months, so I came out a week before my 16th birthday. And what's it like? What did they do with you in there? It's basically, so the first day I went in, your bloods are taken. Every Thursday, your bloods are taken. Every morning, your um, blood pressure is taken. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every day, you have to get up at, I think, half eight. And everyone has to go down together to for breakfast. You go to breakfast. Um, you you that's for a half an hour, and then you come back up. And then the day is split into group sessions. Right. So one day there might be art through mindfulness, or another day there might be um, this recovery action plan. It was um, called RAP Recovery Action Plan, mm. and it. It was basically where we planned what we were going to do when we left and tools and stuff that we'd use in and, the future. And and do these groups, do, or, does, or any kind of session at all, do they try to get to the bottom of what is eating at you or is it just managing what is problem? What is they, they do, I suppose. You, you, I would have met a lot, a lot with counsellors and psychologists in there also. Um, and you would have talked about like your past and things that have happened in your past. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of both. You know, you you were talking about why you were there now and maybe trying to figure out what started it. And did you figure out? Um, well, I suppose there was a lot of like trauma in my family. You don't have was... to. Sh- you don't have to share, but I'm just asking. Yeah, you know. no, there was just um, stuff that had happened, sad things that had happened. And so they had thought maybe some of them had affected me that okay. as a child, I that, that I developed anxiety from things that had happened in my past. Okay, okay, okay. So three months there. And, yeah. and were you better when you came out or were you feeling mm, better? I felt better, but I think the kind of thing people don't know is that you don't come out there feeling like 100% okay. Um, you, you go in, you come out there preparing, recovering. You're in recovery mode, but you don't come out there recovered. Is it that they try to teach you how to deal with your problem? How to deal with them and how to integrate back into society. And, you know, for us, it was school because we were all 15, 16, 17. Right. Did it help you in any way, Claire, going in to a place like John God's and realising that you weren't the only 15 year old with this going on in your head yes it definitely helped because I I always felt quite alone with my worries and stuff when I was in school because it wasn't really talked about there was no you know in classes it wasn't talked about with Mm. friends it wasn't talked about so when I went in there it was refreshing to know that there were other people like me like you had obviously you had you had friends I did have friends yeah and and were you able to talk to them or did you shield them from it I didn't talk to them I think I told them when I was inside that I had mental health problems how did they react to that they were shocked and the one reaction I got from everyone was I didn't think you would be the person that would have something wrong with you 
You must have been very good at covering it up. Yeah, I was. I I was very, like, I would do anything not for people not to know. Mm. It, and it's just, I guess John of God's helped in that way that you had to engage with people your own age. Mm. You know, you were living with them every single day, so you had to talk to them. Yeah. Did it work? Yeah, so I was going into fourth year uh, when I left, and I kind of... See, a lot of things that happened around me would affect me. So, say, at the time there were terrorist attacks in France and um, that affected me in the sense that when I was in school or when I, when we had to go somewhere in school, I would worry that there'd be a terrorist attack wherever I'd go. Okay. And so things around me affected that. So school was hard in that sense that things hadn't magically changed and I wasn't 100% okay. So hearing about something like the bombing in Manchester at the Ariana Grande concert, that must have terrified the life out of you. It, it did. Yeah. I didn't go. I think I kind of pushed people away, friends maybe. I kind of refused to go anywhere, um, didn't go to parties or anything I was invited to because I was just terrified of... It was always with me, like, something's going to happen to me. That must be an awful way to have to live for a young girl. Yeah, it was awful. Had you a capacity in you, Claire, to, to sit down and look in the mirror and say, this isn't... I'm only imagining this. It's, it's not going to happen. Had you a, an ability to, as it were, counsel yourself through? Um, I did... Like, everyone would say to me, I'm an intelligent person, but it's just, I, every time I was actually in the situation then, if I went shopping, if I went to the cinema, and I heard a noise, that would just trigger, it would trigger feelings in me, and then it would spiral. And would you get a panic attack, like, in the cinema or something? Yeah, I would, I would have to leave, um, if I, if I was somewhere like that. And I hope you had understanding friends or at least your, your fa- I yeah. imagine your family were brilliant with you were they? Yeah my family are great they're all um, I have three older siblings so they were um, they were very kind and stuff to me at the time so. what, what about friends you're there and halfway through the movie you, you just know you got to get out well I just I wouldn't I, to be honest I don't think I really met with friends at the time okay. it was just if I was going somewhere I was going with my sister or my parents, like, it kind of had gotten to the point that I was so out of the loop that yeah, so getting back in was hard. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It was so out of the loop, getting back in is hard. And for a young teenager not to be surrounded by friends, that's not the way it's supposed to be, Claire, is it? No, um, and it was hard. I did receive, say, when I was in John of God, I received letters and cards and stuff, but you know, it was different because I didn't have any visitors, really. Just it was hard for my parents to come up because they live so far away. Yeah. So, and plus the first week you had to stay in over the weekend. You weren't allowed to go home the first weekend. I see. So that was really difficult to not see anyone. Yes. Lonely, I'd say. It was. But I remember, like I said in my post, I remember like crying in, um, in bed at night because the rooms were very... Um, you were you were when you first came in. You were put in a referral room, yeah. and you're meant to only be there for a week or so. But I was there for six weeks. Wow! How, um, how come? Um, I think it was just because there were no beds available. Okay. The Further usual. down. The usual. 
Bourgeois. Yeah, the post, you raised the, the, the post now of this week. We were still talking about where all this started in 2016, but you posted again on Facebook this week and you reminded your your followers on Facebook that of the night you arrived in St. John of God's, you, you, you cried and listened to sad songs and felt you'd hit rock bottom. Yeah, that was basically... I was devastated that I was that I was here and not at home. And I was angry that it was me and not someone else. And were you looking for somebody to blame? Um, or something? I guess I did. If I'm being honest, I did blame my parents because I said, why are you putting me in here and leaving me? And, you know, they'd say to me, well, it's only for your own good, you know, in the nicest way possible. But I couldn't really accept that at the time. So let's look back on it now, in, in 2020, and you're talking to me, and you would, we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation in 2016. No, definitely not. So in the last four years, how have you been? It has been um, a real roller coaster for me because I haven't, I'm still struggling with my mental health. Um, I tried to go to college and that kind of fell through because I, my anxiety was too much. And then I was, when I was 18, I was, um, went to the adult services and that was really difficult because there was such a big difference between the child cams and then the adult services. We hear a lot about that change from childhood services to adult services. You've, you've actually been through it. What's it like? It's, I always feel like it's, the, the compassion isn't there as much when you're an adult. That when you leave CAMS, you have all this support group around you, but then you go to the adult services and it's kind of like, okay, I can talk to this person, but every month when you'd meet someone, you'd meet a different psychologist because they wouldn't all meet you every single month. It wasn't structured, and I liked structure. Mm-hmm. And did it seem like they weren't overly familiar with your file or your story that yeah I guess it was because they it was a different person every month so I didn't feel like I could start go to the same person and then talk about what had happened in the last month I had to go back to the very start and start all over again that, that's that's kind of daft if you were seeing the same person every time you'd build a relationship of sorts with yeah. them and, and that was the good thing about cams that you had you had the same person and um, it was structured and you did the, sa- the same things and you knew what to expect. So, as we speak today, how are you? Are you able to get up and go out and do things? Um, yeah, it's difficult in like the current situation with COVID-19 um, because like it, it has been tough for us as well. My dad, I, uh, my dad was diagnosed with mouth cancer in December. Oh, dear. And he, um, so he started treatment when the lockdown was brought in. So that was, I think, in May. Um, And he has been doing that. And of course, then that like hit me and affected me because I automatically took on that thing of, that I used to do when I was younger of, oh my God, I'll get something wrong with me now. Something bad will happen to me. So which was hard because I was trying to focus on my dad, but then in my own head, I was trying to, like, console myself with everything that was going on because it was 
really difficult for me to accept that something like that could happen to him because I always said he's such a good person and he's just the nicest person ever. So I couldn't accept why something so horrible had to happen to someone who was so great. It's like this little whisper in your head, Claire, isn't it? That says, now you're going to, you're going to suffer now. Yeah, definitely. And so I had been, in the last few months, I've been in and out to the doctor with, I would go in talking about, oh, I have a pain here and I have something here. But, like, every time she'd say to me, you know, um, you have to be the one to tell yourself that you're okay, which is hard for me because I don't, it's like I don't believe myself when I'm telling me that I'm all right. Yeah. Also, the panic attacks, I think, have... have They've, they've developed into something else that your self-worth you, you, you worry about your self-worth and you you do what so many young people do so many people full stop do you, you base we shouldn't but you do base your self-worth on your likes on Instagram yeah I think it's kind of because I don't have a lot of friends so I true Instagram is kind of my social outlet so when I see someone liking a photo of mine or commenting it makes me feel like oh they like me like they they want you know they're they're there and they actually care about what I'm posting so but then it's hard on the other hand because if you don't get the likes the loads of likes and the loads of comments you might like for me I would think oh my god what did I do wrong what did I say wrong Mm. Um, so it's Kind of you, you seem to be wired to blame yourself for everything that goes wrong. Yeah, I think I am. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, definitely. I. It's kind of, I guess I've been told that it's something I have to work on myself because, like, like I've been doing okay in the last few months or two, Um but it's all about like trying to convince myself that I'm okay and that I can like that I'm strong enough to get through stuff because I have before. Yeah, you had you have before and you will again. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking of on World Mental Health Day, and I know there were some things you wanted to say about that and about the whole idea of being aware of mental health anyway. For those of us lucky enough not to suffer with our mental health. I think that I feel like nowadays we hear a lot about mental health and um, we hear about it from people, like I hear it from people my own age, but it's still, um, when it actually comes down to it, it's still a really difficult topic to discuss because you, like, it's hard to talk to someone about what's wrong with you and it's hard to reach out to someone because you don't know what the reaction is going to be. So I just, for me, that was the difficult part was trying to reach out to someone and trying to get that support because I maybe in myself felt that it wasn't going to happen, that I wouldn't get, this, which I obviously did. So that's something that I would say to people that like, if you need to reach out to someone, do because you, you people are there to support you. You have family members to support you. You have friends to support you. Yeah, but you see, there'll be that little voice, won't there, that says, yeah. oh, they don't want to know. Don't be bothering them. Yeah. So I think you have to, 
overcome that voice for your own sake. Did you have to? Yeah, definitely. I had to kind of push it down and push it away and realise that if I wanted help and if I wanted to be happier, then that's what I have to do. I have to reach out to people. Because your demon doesn't want you to be well because then it's got no purpose. Yes, so it was always for me very something in my head telling me that I couldn't do things, that things around me were going to go wrong. But I think you have to kind of, if you want the help, you have to reach out. And I know it's really difficult, mm. but it's at the end of the day, it's what will make you better. And some something you want to tell the rest of us who are lucky enough to have good, solid mental health. I think it's just to talk to others and talk to people, especially if you feel like someone you know is in a bad place mentally, that you need to reach out to them because, like I said, it's difficult on the other hand to reach out, but it's also difficult to be the person to reach or to be the person to talk back and listen because, you know, you're you're sharing the responsibility then with that person. It's, It's so simple, but it's difficult because you don't think to do it. Um, and because, you know, when we're talking to someone, we say, hi, how are you? And automatically the response is, I'm good, how are you? But we never say, you know what, I'm not actually feeling okay. Yeah. Because, again, the the little voice is saying, they don't care. Yeah. They don't care. They don't, it's, you know, it won't affect them. So don't tell them. Do tell them. But do tell them, yes. Do tell them, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You have to be the kind of, you tell, have to override the voice, basically. Tell that little voice to shut up and yeah. mind its own <laughs> business. Yeah, yeah. Come back to what you said about the adult services, because that's, I just want to finish with that, because I think, again, like everything, it's 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 good to talk to someone who's been through it, and I guess is still going through it yeah. in their own way. The adult services and the childhood services, I think you're saying, need to flow better into each other. Yes, definitely, because I feel, like I said in my post, um, St. Patrick's Mental Health in Dublin is the only unit for people aged 18 to 25. Yes, there are units for people 18 to 25, but it's with adults, older adults. So if you can imagine being 17 and then turning 18 and having to go and be in a place where these people are the same age as your parents, so how, like, you have to, you know, it's nice to have someone your own age to talk to. And, you know, it it makes you feel more comfortable because if you're coming from a place like Cam's where everything is so put together and, you know, you, you, everyone's the same age as you and you're all kind of in the same boat, it's harder then when you move on to the adult services. And do you think the recognition of that is there? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, like, I was waiting three months to get an appointment with the adult services mm. just because of wait lists and, you know, certain rules. You can't, you have to wait till you turn 18 and you have to, you know, you you have to wait a while and it's just... When you need help, you need it today, not yeah. when you turn 18. I need help now. Don't mind, don't, don't be asking me to wait till my birthday. Yeah, it, it, it's, that's it. You just have to... Like it's it just doesn't make any sense. Like you, why would why would you suddenly for why would your would your mind suddenly switch off when you turn eighteen for a few months and then switch? But you know it doesn't work like that. Yeah. 
Claire, like everybody else, you've got hopes and dreams. You're, you're 20 years of age now. Yeah. Do you feel like um, sharing them with us? Yeah, so, well, I'm doing a dog grooming course online at the moment because I love dogs. I have five dogs. And I love singing. I've started doing singing lessons with voice works. Ah. So I just love to sing. And I used to sing in, like, school, at concerts. And I sang in the... That's Trish Rooney, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. I sang in the National Concert Hall when wow. I was younger. Wow. With my school. So I love to sing. And um, I... I started singing lessons and I have my own like music page on Facebook and stuff so it's all so it's kind of all working brilliant brilliant and is is music a way to to is it a kind of therapy it is definitely because like I said in my post like everything when I was in John of God's music was what I turned to when I felt sad it's what I turned to to make me feel good you know it's it's every, it's everything to me right well, you go follow the music and your doggies. <laughs> thank you. And I wish you well, and thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, thank you very much. And you know that other voice? Yeah. Tell it to get the hell out of your head. <laughs> okay. Tell that voice, PJ said, get the hell out of my head. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Look after yourself, Claire. Thank you very much. She's great. We've got a big response to her. I'll get to them uh, tomorrow, but we're done for today. Just quick mention of Shane Hayes. Ran 100 kilometres in one day last Sunday at the tank field. Uh, €3,000 raised for Bernardo's. His mum, Catherine, was on the phone, uh, breathless with excitement to tell us all about it. She's very proud of him, and why wouldn't she be? Listen, that's it for today. Edited by Deirdre Shotnessy, produced and researched by Fergal Barry, with Wayne Hilton pushing the buttons. That's it. See you tomorrow, just after nine. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.